Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode, we'll be reviewing our top six favorite films of 2015. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody. Welcome in to episode 48 of Film Tank. On this episode, we'll be reviewing 2015, as uh, this is part one of our 2015 year in review episode, as we'll be doing our top six favorite films from the year 2015. On this episode, myself, Alex Diekman, and also Nick Cheney here, and Toussaint Egan. Hello. Hey. Hey. Yeah. Yep. I don't yeah. know why I got so loud there at the end, but That's okay. it's fine. So yeah, top six. We've uh, been doing. Uh, we did quite a few of these in 2015. Did the uh, the superheroes, also Disney animation, revenge episodes, and holiday favorites. That's right. Wow. We don't. This is our fifth one. It is. Wow. wow. And I think uh, if we uh, keep this uh, podcast going, which is the plan, I think top six favorite films of the year will be a, a staple Absolutely. early on. In the uh, the new year, so. and you know what I propose? We always do it after the year is officially ended instead of before. I agree, Nick. So yeah. that we're able to like catch up on all the films that we want from that year. Yeah. Well, especially when uh, some films come out in January that know, actually like, technically came out in this year. We had like the Hateful Eight and the Revenant, kind yeah. of both. I would say pretty much mainstream appearing after uh, uh, December thirty first, which is crazy. Yeah, but, it's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah, but. Whatever, that's fine. Yeah. And I can right now up front say that there are films on my list that I will talk about that probably have a 2014 uh, <laughs> tag, so to speak, because they had their world premieres in 2014. Oh, okay. But they did not commercially get even stateside at all. Uh, I have those two. Until this year. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. So before we get into our top six favorite films from this year, why don't we have some honorable, <laughs> some honorable mentions? As I know, all three of us saw quite a uh, high number of films this year, and I'm sure there were quite a few that we enjoyed that didn't make it into our top six. So who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. Why not? It, okay. Uh, I did see quite a number of movies. Um, so just outside my top six, uh, I'm kind of just going to briefly, briefly go through my seven through ten. But uh, <clears throat> right outside my list was Anomalisa, which was the Charlie Kaufman uh stop-motion animated movie that he did that was kind of started as a Kickstarter uh, and co-produced by uh, Dan Harmon and had the uh, involvement of, like, Dino... Whatever. Dino Stopanopoulos. Yes, I always forget how to pronounce it. But it's yes, really weird. It is. Uh, who's a great uh, stop-motion animated uh, person. And the... I forgot who the actual co-director is, who I'm now leaving out, but uh, that guy was also <laughs> the co-director. That uh, guy was great. Very prepared. Uh, but no, that movie was fantastic, and the only reason why it wasn't even higher up than I thought it would be was because it ended up being a slightly different story than I was expecting, but that's part of the course for Charlie Kaufman. But it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, tale about, like, 
one man's depression that kind of manifests itself as like egocentrism because uh, he essentially f- feels like he's the only unique individual in the world. Mm. And yeah, like whereas um, and how that kind of I would say gets him to enter this love affair with this uh, this girl named Lisa. And I think that's the big thing is the trailer makes it look like a love story. It's really a love affair, and those are two completely different things. The animation itself, which was always self-conscious and always reminded you that these were puppets, like, it didn't, like, that they even had, like, these hinges, like, embedded into their actual facial design, and yet they felt more real than most of the character work I'd seen all year. So that was my number seven. Um, Number eight was Spotlight. I thought it was fantastic. It's just a workhorse of a movie uh it's really just about like how do you solve a problem much of the same way the martian is uh and instead of being a tale about survival it's more about just like how journalists good journalists uh do good work uh amidst something that's just so uh unfathomable and imaginable and kind of horrific in its implications and uh just there's really not much to be said about it because everything has been but well uh, i was actually going to say that spotlight is actually in my uh, top 10 this year as well. Yeah. So it was going to be an honorable mention. It was my number nine film of the year. Yeah. And I, I think it, it really is a fantastic film. And I, I am rooting forward to win best picture this year at the Academy Awards because yeah. Yeah. even though I think I liked other films that were nominated more than spotlight, uh, I still think that it was overall the best picture of the year in terms of what I would like to see win. Oh and, yeah. If it wins, that'd be like the, best i think best picture winner in like recent memory like as far as one i have absolutely no qualms about whatsoever for yeah. me personally i know uh, i love birdman last year you but, did and i like yeah. birdman too but i guess i just love that this movie that came without any pretension like i i love yeah. birdman actually like i do like birdman but this is just such an important movie and yet it never feels like oscar bait even though it very well easily could have considering the subject matter and whatnot but i think another part of this film too that, that makes it so great at least for me is not just the story which is very interesting and there were parts of it that i didn't even know about that i was surprised by i was like holy shit really like that's how they found out yeah. all these priest names but I think the fact that they pulled off a really strong ensemble piece here with names that you necessarily wouldn't think of right away. Like, like obviously, people like Mark Ruffalo and Stanley Tucci are, are people who you see in ensemble films all the time, and they, they do really well. But Rachel McAdams and Michael Keaton. Uh, my favorite. Leif Schreiber yes. was great. I was going to say, he was probably my favorite character in the whole movie. And yet nobody really feels like they take too much screen time out of the film. It really moves well between them, but you never really feel like you're not finding out enough about the characters, and it's just yeah. a, a great film. For sure. No, I can't even add anything to that. Hmm. Uh, my number nine was Ex Machina, which was a sci-fi movie that we've talked about at length on this podcast. I'm not yeah. really going to again, but <laughs> it definitely stayed, I would say, firmly in my top ten. And, uh, it, you know, it, maybe I saw a few movies that I liked more, but I don't know that this would easily be a movie I'd probably rewatch more than a lot of them. So it was just kind of a different thing in and of itself. And then just my final, uh, my number ten was a documentary I only caught up on uh, this past week called Approaching the Elephant, uh, which is right now available for rental on iTunes. And um, it is about the the inaugural year of this school in New Jersey that's called a free school, where there are no um, 
where where everything, including the rules, are uh, set up via a democratic process uh, amongst the students and the teachers, and no classes are mandatory. So, and this is for like elementary level mm. kids, um, and it's about the trials and tribulations on what that entails. Uh, and I think what fascinated me the most was the fact that I don't think I've ever seen uh, a documentary so unbiased. It hmm. it just sits the camera there and but still captures it wonderfully. But uh, just observes and I think like to me it, the movie was a horror story <laughs> because <laughs> the it, lunatics are running the asylum. Yes, and um, it was insane for me like to see certain uh, like the director of the school himself. Uh, at one point, I thought was acting like a child and essentially threatening to quit because one of the kids was being too mean to him. Like it, it was insane, and yet I could also see that I don't ever think the film says that this method doesn't work. It just for me, my takeaway is it didn't work for me personally. Maybe other people disagree, but it didn't work this time. But maybe if you you know have a tinker it a little bit, tinker it, or just have like an actual like system in place. I think that was the biggest thing is that they kind of just like all started day one together and. Including the teachers and the directors, like, and that's the only thing that's kind of left out of the conversation of the movie is like, what are the practicalities of how this would work? Like, how do you give a child an education? Because all we see are kids like in rooms, and now they're in this room playing the piano, and now they're in this room. But like, we're told that they can't, they can do whatever they want to. So they are making the choices to either play the piano or to go outside and have recess. But it's kind of like, I, I just wanted to see a little more from the director. Uh, the director of the the school, not the director of the film, uh, just kind of at least explain to the audience. But there are no talking heads, so you really kind of, and that's okay because that's outside of the scope of this movie, so to speak. So, for what it was, I thought it was one of the most uh, like exhilarating, just social experiments, uh, and just to see uh, what works and what doesn't. I, it, it has one of the uh, best, I think, David Ehrlich from uh, who's now writing for Rolling Stone. He used to write for the AV Club and the Dissolve. Uh, he and one of his letterbox review he said that this movie has the greatest uh on the screen villain of 2015 and the kid of giovanni the the snot-nosed six-year-old who basically runs the entire place fucking giovanni <laughs> yes pretty much like it's uh the the entire culmination of the movie and i won't spoil how it ends is essentially who goes giovanni or the director like uh yeah so it's huh. uh it's very interesting i i i, I absolutely loved it and uh, it's shot in uh Four by three ratio with black and white kind of standard deaf footage, but uh, it still was able to kind of capture it beautifully. So, hmm. those are those are some honorable mentions uh, for me. Very good. All right, Tucson, yeah. you want to go next, or yeah. you want me to? Yeah, sounds good. I um, only have like two honorable mentions that I want to bring up. Okay, um, I've seen a lot of films, but these two kind of really like resonated with me, but they just didn't happen to make the cut of like my final top six. So first one is Straight Out of Compton with uh, F. Gary Gray's uh, biopic of the rise and eventual like fall of N.W.A. Like I, I've always had a history of hip history with hip hop, but I've never really listened to N.W.A. So this was a, as much a educational as it was a edifying experience for me. And I thought that everyone really put in some really great performances, especially the guy who played Easy E. Like he was he was terrific. And O'Shea uh, Jackson Jr., who is like Ice Cube's actual son, who played him played his father perfectly my my one gripe i have a lot of gripes with with this film which is why i did not end up in my in my top six but for what i enjoyed about it i still recommend it like i feel like it glosses over some of the more unsavory uh elements regarding ice cube and dr dre mostly because they're executive producing the film 
and Easy E gets a pass as well because he um, he he died, and his his death is the emotional crux of this entire film. And the other two members of NWA are just kind of like shuffled off to the to the wayside. Really? Yeah, they huh. are. It's 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 bizarre. It's it's kind of insulting. It's, this, it's, yeah. Huh. This is one I've actually I meant to see all year, and I, I did unfortunately did not get around to seeing it. Yeah, yeah. but I, I've heard very good things, especially about Ice Cube's son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. Uh, Definitely recommend it, and it was uh, one of my top fist-pumping moments in the theater uh, this year. So, oh. yeah. Uh, my second recommended film would be Crimson Peak by Gimerald Del Toro, just because I think that he is a terrific um, aesthetic master, but somehow he just falls on the pretense of just having a very – a more hair-thin uh, storyline. And I think that he can definitely do better, probably if he's, like, co-writing with somebody else, like – I think that it's 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 a terrific film, but yeah. I, I completely second that endorsement because I, even if it's not in my top ten or even top twenty, if you really count or whatever, like I'm still gonna rewatch it one day, and um, I'll never regret going to see it in the theaters too. I mean, that's the big thing is mm-hmm. that I, I admit that it might not have as much impact if you're watching it on a TV uh, as it did when I when we saw it in the theaters, but uh, it's still just a. A wonderful ghost story to look at at the very least yeah tom hiddleston is perfect as a sort of bronte-esque um gentleman and i think it's Catherine blanchett who plays opposite of him um no. you talking about mia wazikowska or are you talking Me- about jessica chastain jessica chastain i'm okay. sorry okay. yeah i i, I definitely could... not kate blanchett yeah it's like jessica chastain <laughs> she was yes. she was an awesome antagonist in this film I she was it. yeah she was, for me, the one part of that film that I really enjoyed because, as you may remember, I was not a huge fan of that film. Yeah. But I thought her performance and role in that film was actually really good. I actually think she's just a really good actress, too. But Agreed. That film, I had some problems with it. But I, I'm glad you guys really enjoyed it because it was definitely a film that I could see a lot of people liking. So <coughs> that's good. For sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. So I guess my uh, honorable mentions this year, I have uh, a... Not, I wouldn't say quite a few, but I had a few I definitely wanted to uh, talk about that weren't necessarily even in my top ten, but are just films that I, I really enjoyed this year that I, I'm glad I had the chance to see that I, I don't know if I would have seen uh, otherwise, um, and just wanted to mention them. Um, the three that I really definitely wanted to mention were uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, which I thought was a fantastic Rogue film. Nation. Sorry, man. I get them. They're so, they're so I, every they're time so I many. Google search one, I'll always type the other one. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, they just seem to go together because it really seems like the last two films have really upped their game with the Mission Impossible series. Yeah. So, anyways, Rogue Nation, the one that actually did come out in 2015, <laughs> I I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a very well done film, and I really enjoyed almost all the performances in it too, which is kind of rare for me watching a, a film like that. Usually, there will be some characters I don't care for really, and there were some that were better than others, but for the most part, I thought everyone really uh, brought their A-game for this film, and it was, I thought, a really well-done um, scene-by-scene film where you moved on from different parts to eventually the finale, and I just it just all really worked for me, and I, I really, really liked Rebecca Ferguson. I thought she was great in this film. She's great. I'm glad that the, the rumors are that she'll be the first lady to return to a Mission Impossible movie for the next one. And that's great, because yeah. I'm, I'm really looking, and it, she seems like someone who's going to start getting some more roles here uh, in terms of major Hollywood films, or at least just more work in general. So that's uh, really great to know. Yeah, and uh, it's like, oh, something yeah. to look forward to. <laughs> for sure. 
Um, a film that I, I, I don't want to have necessarily is talk a lot about, but it's definitely what I'll mention is the, the star Wars film, the force awakens. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge star Wars fan. And, uh, this film really rekindled my love of star Wars, which had, I would say gone dormant after my younger childhood years. And it had awakened. It, it did. It really did. The <laughs> force awakening. awakened in a lot of people. It's not just me yeah. and, you know, credit to Disney for not only, brainwashing everybody and getting them back into Star Wars really the way that they 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 could be in marketing it correctly, but also, I think, making a good film that people could enjoy. I was going to say, really, the key to that for me, even if I obviously didn't love it because I just don't love Star Wars, but the one thing that they did get absolutely right was just finding the right people, whether it was finding J.J., not that he was a fine, obviously, he's been around for a while now, but he is the kind of perfect person to both whack nostalgia and yet still deliver on the blockbuster format and of course the casting itself uh you don't i don't know that any new blockbuster is really going to have a a new cast that just tops the the trio of daisy ridley john boyega and oscar isaac like yes just just terrific they were and uh really they did a nice job kind of bringing them in with the old cast and really melding them together even if some people want to claim that the, the film was too much like the original Star Wars film, which I think has some validity to it, but at the same time, I feel like trying to connect both worlds together, you need to have some sort of rebirth of the original series. So yeah. I really enjoyed the Star Wars film, and it was just outside my top six for the year, and I, I'm, I'm glad it happened, and I'm looking forward to, to more Star Wars in the upcoming years. You're going to get it. <laughs> I know, it's it's coming, and I'm one of these days, when after they finally finish the new Star Wars land at Disney World, I'm definitely going to go down there and check that shit out. You will yeah. learn to regret those words in time <laughs> when you are an old man taking your child to Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other film I, I definitely wanted to mention uh, was was a film that I, I feel like kind of flew under the radar a little bit this year and then uh, kind of came on a little bit as people thought more about award season and that kind of thing, which was the film Brooklyn, which I really enjoyed. And, and Nick, I know you and me went to go see it together. And I know you, you liked it, but you didn't love it as much as I did. I just had reservations with the whole third act, which mm-hmm. is such a crucial part of the movie, not just because it's the ending, but because it all comes down to the decision she wrestles with throughout the entire movie. Uh, but I, I still would recommend it to people. I, I, sure. There's still a lot of stuff to like, and, and it, obviously that ending plays differently depending on who watches it. Well, and I feel like just the story and the, the kind of scope of everything in the time period worked together so well for me. It felt like a lot of the costuming and the uh, production design worked really well, and it, it worked really well with the story, too. And I think that's what made me like it so much. And there um, were good performances, obviously, by Saoirse Ronan, who was great in this film. Uh, and other people, too. Uh, Dom Hall Gleason shows up here, as he does great. in so many other films this year, that were actually good. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think kind of where this separates a little bit from a film we talked about a couple weeks ago, like Carol, which has been getting critical acclaim pretty much from every critic who's seen it and a lot of people just went to go see it Uh, but i feel like this film kind of gets right that production design costuming kind of thing Uh, but i I think the story is what is keeps me interested in this film and and the script and the acting where carol i think sometimes for me got a little not necessarily bland but just not as great as i hoped it would be but i feel like brooklyn really hammers home a the film on a lot of different levels. One thing about Brooklyn that was like I was set to almost hate is that I just get actively turned off by films that are quote unquote costume dramas. Like just where I watch a film or a TV show that 
seems like it's just an excuse for people to like set dress and get up and dress up and uh, like wear the story and everything. It's just so hollow. Do you mean like like some like Downton Abbey? Kind of like that, except that's good melodrama, actually. Because Well, I was just trying to find an example. But yeah, something like that, where okay. it gets such a claim because people get, yes, immersed in a world, whatever. But like one thing I liked about Brooklyn is that I thought that it never verged on like scenery porn. Like, it is a gorgeous movie as far as how it's shot and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But like it's got all these details that it gets just right, that it never feels like it's... Um, kind of like Mad Men used to do it, too. Uh, where in the very first three episodes of that show, there were so many like, oh, she's smoking when she's pregnant, or like, can, it's, like, can you spot the difference? between now and that whereas this world just lived and breathed on its own and I, I really appreciated that I did too and it was right outside my uh, top six and I'm really glad we went to go see it that was that was definitely a fun day uh, I think it was the, the weekend after Thanksgiving we went and saw Brooklyn and Spotlight which were two winners I think and then we saw the uh, the Tom Hardy film Legend which uh, you absolutely hated and I yeah. thought wasn't very good so yeah. that, it was not good <laughs> no, no it was not but, uh, hey, you know what? You get yeah. two Tom Hardys for the price of one. I mean, yeah, if that's your thing. There is some good Tom Hardy in there, I will say, for how bad that film. He had some good moments. And he got that great line that I found, uh, figured out a way to get into the Revenant uh, episode from last week. So, yeah. Shootout. It's a bloody fucking shootout. Okay, Tom. Let's back it up there. Wow. All right. Well, that's, uh, I think, uh, quite enough for honorable mentions, although I could see other films getting brought up when we're doing our top six, too, as um, a lot of films were viewed this year. So uh, let's start off our top six with Nick, as I'm sure he's uh, got something to bring to the table that uh, maybe some in your top six we haven't talked about yet this year. Oh, well, Mm -hmm. maybe. Like my number six. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, My number six, I actually didn't mention it once uh, in passing on a weekend review, but it's a film that stayed with me all this time, and it's... uh, Amy, the Amy Winehouse mm. documentary uh, directed by Asif Kapadia. Oh. And this film for me uh, is just, it, it's, a, it's a film that even more than something like The Hateful Eight, like it made me sick uh, to watch because I, I think when I saw the trailer, and I know you got this vibe from the trailer, Alex, that it was maybe going to, like as a documentary, try to point fingers mm-hmm. at maybe who it might be complicit in Amy Winehouse's death, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What, the reason why I love this documentary after seeing it is that it feels less like a murder mystery and more like an autopsy. It's just presenting facts and evidence, and I I don't see how anybody can watch it and not just basically think that everybody's complicit from Amy Winehouse herself and her self-destructive uh, and just kind of tragic uh, tendencies, but also her family members who completely abused uh, their power uh, kind of over Amy. I mean, her father is, I don't want to get into like too personal details, considering this is like a real thing, so I'm not necessarily saying something about another person, but the, the character portrayed in this documentary of her father, uh, you know, uh, showing up when she was trying to be at rehab with camera crews to his own reality TV show, uh, you know, little details like that. Um, and even from that, and intercutting it with um like jay leno making a pretty stupid joke just in one of his nightly monologues about like oh will she actually appear at the uh you know whatever grammys or is she gonna be coked out and then everybody laughs and fuck leno well we it's fuck leno but it's fuck us too because i think i'm the same kind of person who not that i laugh at leno's joke because i don't but like when amy was alive i did not listen to her music because i thought she was like the kim kardashian of r&b because of the way she was covered so to speak by journalists like 
all I ever knew her through, besides I, I didn't know of her music. Was the tablets. <laughs> exactly. And that became such a, uh, just an outrageous level of fame uh, for things that people shouldn't get famous for, uh, that it completely overshadowed, A, what an enormous talent she was, and B, uh, that she was a person in need of help, and we just kept ignoring it. And I And I don't mean to say that... Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I all I, like the one song that I always remember of her was a song about rehab, that, yeah. which they're probably, I wouldn't, I don't know if it was her most <laughs> famous song, but I feel like it was okay. the song that really made people notice her for the first time. Yeah. And the, the lyrics of the song is pretty much just, they tried to make me go to rehab, and I said no. Right. And, then, and, and this, this is why she's famous. Yeah. It's because not, of the song. Yeah. But, and, it's, and it's more than just a song that's like, influenced by her real life it's like almost verbatim her because then after the the lines you're speaking of the lines of the song are um i ain't got the time and my daddy thinks i'm fine and that's a key line in that song Mm. especially after you watch this documentary when you realize that her father was the only person that she actually listened to through and through despite the fact that he was also maybe the worst person to her because every time some of her loved ones and close people to her would try to get her to go to rehab they would go to her father and they say you need to tell her to go to rehab because she'll listen to you and his answer every time was, oh, no, she just needs to get out there and tour more and make more money. And uh, so it's just it's it's things like that that just absolutely blow my mind. But then it's it's really the thing that kind of caps it all off is um, it's just a the, the way this documentary is structured is that it is just uh, a cavalcade of just. Uh, it's almost like found footage. It's just these clips from, you know, her cell phone, maybe not hers, but like her friend's cell phone when they just took random videos of each other. It's kind of amazing that this footage even exists to interviews, you know, on this show, on that show, to concert footage, to behind the scenes party footage, to like, there is no talking head segments in this. And yet it tells a complete story. And if there ever was like a talking head, like maybe somebody just talking about Amy, then you only hear the audio and you'll, you'll hear that audio over a certain video clips of her. So it's kind of like she's in every frame of this. And while we're watching it, then we still feel like we are, you know, kind of perpetrating this, uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, culmination of what happened to be her tragic death. And it's just something that made me sick. And it's it's maybe the first thing, and I've always thought it, but it's like after watching this, I genuinely think this should be shown to Congress, and I think we need to outlaw paparazzi. And like, I'm not saying that that's they're, they're the reasons or anything like that. But, like, after watching this movie, I, I just can't believe that we find it morally acceptable uh, for this to be allowed. It just blows my mind. I know, Nick. It's It's... That that's a whole that that tangles into like the like the human id and our fascination and our in our infatuation well, with with fame. And I think it's really hard for people who who aren't celebrities to see to to well, well yeah it's like not, you not, can't not, not to see but to, but to, to fathom to, how uh, like the effect it would have. Well, I, I think that too because I, I do think that is part of it. But I think also it's really hard for people to get on board with being angry about someone being followed by the paparazzi. Like, you know what? They're millionaires. They got all that. They can deal with that because we as, as people and and for good or bad, whatever, we just have a hard time thinking about celebrities and actors and musicians as anything than what they are. Like, it's hard to really think about them as real people. Right. And I think that's what I mean is that that's why I think laws do need to go into place because all these 
processes and stuff like that only dehumanizes them. And at, at any point, if you have a group, uh, a minority group or whatever, a group of people that are somehow being dehumanized by processes that we are not looking into, that's just as bad as like you know some other things that happen on a daily basis that we bring up issues with. That's a whole nother can of worms that I wish that I, I had the forethought to be able to like think more on so that we could have yeah. like a more like like seasoned debate about. But I just want to say like after talking about for Amy Winehouse, like she really does follow in the the tragic lineage of influential like R and B like songstresses like like Nina Simone and I honestly hope that she is the last that we have to deal with that. I don't want to yeah. see that again. Yeah. And so. I also want to say before I pass it on to the next person and we move on with this list, I, I, I want to say that I don't think that Amy Winehouse had nothing to do with her own death or anything like that. I just think it's it's insane if somebody could reasonably watch this documentary and i think that's the power of movies and documentaries specifically when you talk about true stories that can really change a person's way of thinking hopefully uh that it's not that i don't think she's not complicit but i just think that we're oblivious and kidding ourselves if we think that these things don't have harmful repercussions so yeah so yeah that's my, that's my number six it's a movie that like i more so than any other movie, like made me want to throw up almost because of just how kind of angry. Besides movies like Spotlight, uh, that of just like something that needs to be changed uh, about our world. So that's Amy by uh, Asif Kapadia. Uh, yep. All right. All right, Tuzan, your uh, number six of 2015. <clears throat> okay, my number six is Dope by oh. Rick Famuyiwa. I was like, when I first saw this film, like I thought it was a. A, a, a decent film. I thought it had, it had its flaws in it. But after, like, going back for it for another rewatch, like, I really I really do enjoy this film. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, Shemek Moore's uh, turn as Malcolm because I really do see a lot of my – this is coming from me personally, like, as as a as a, a young, black, nerdy guy, like, who, who came up in, like, similar areas and stuff. Like, I see a lot of myself in him. And I think that what really – resonates for me about this film is that it's it's not just the surface details of him being a hip-hop fan it's not the, just the surface details of him just trying to get good grades or him watching anime or just trying to like hang out with his friends it's really just a coming of age story it's about this guy who is trying so hard to resist the temptations of his environment and to resist the 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 drama of his environment as it tries to pull all of his dreams under and sometimes he has to learn to play the game in order to beat it and I thought that it was a terrific turn. I think that um, – what's her name? Uh, Kiersey Clemens as one of Malcolm's friends was absolutely terrific. She just she just plays this lesbian girl who's, who just makes jokes all the time and all the time. And Zoe Kravitz like in her role as a love interest was, was terrific. I think that she uh, really grounded Malcolm away from just like focusing only on school but also how to be a human being. So, yeah. yeah. I bet that was one that I also meant to catch, and I you should. never did. I know. I've, yeah. I've, I, it's almost one I've forgotten about, even though it got quite a bit of uh, critical praise and whatnot. The soundtrack is, is is awesome. As a as a 90s hip-hop fan, like, I yeah. love it. So, huh. uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, Dope by Rick Famuya is my number six. Okay. Right on. So uh, I will preface this by saying every one of my top six uh, we have done an episode on, which Ooh. I was surprised about. 
Oh, I didn't um, even think about that. I yeah, oh. I, I was when I looked through it, I'm like, holy shit, we've done an episode on every so one. So really, of these. you just don't need to talk at all. This I episode. was gonna say I'm not gonna have too just much kidding. to say on them, but I uh, some of them were, were from a while ago. Right. So, but you've rewatched, I assume, some of them since then. I have, too. and I've also um, you know had more time to think about them since we first talked about yeah. them. So uh, I think that's a good thing. And uh, start off with my number six. Which uh, earlier this year I, I gave a perfect grade to, and then I knocked it down to a, a four and a half, and that would be uh, James Wan's Furious Seven. Hmm. I remember going to see this in the theater uh, the day it came out. Me and Nick went, and this was the uh, I think this is why I liked it so much is because 2015 got off to such a slow start for me in the theater. I, I I, even like films that I caught that weren't necessarily like early year films. I just was not impressed with anything really that I saw early in the year. And this was the first time that I went to a theater and was actually like really enjoyed myself. And I think that's what really pushed me to that initial um, perfect grade. But I still really enjoy this film. And I think uh, it's at least for me, easily the best of the furious uh, fast and the furious series. And I, I think it's just because so many of the characters work so well in this film. This film is so in tune with what it wants to be. It's just a fun, ridiculous film the entire way through. And it's totally committing to that from start to finish. Nick, you talked about other films that committed to, to, to what it was trying to do. Something like Magic Mike Double XL, which also was a really good film and could have easily been honorable mention because it was in my yeah. top ten for the year because... It was very much committed to what it was trying to do, and it never tried to become something more than it was, and that's exactly what Furious 7 does. Yeah, I pretty much don't disagree with a single thing you're saying. It's a spoiler alert. It's not in my top six, but I will admit that I probably, besides maybe a movie like Magic Mike (laughs) Double XL, I don't (laughs) think I've had as much fun in the theater all year than with Furious 7, uh, especially the very first time I saw it. I'm not saying that it dragged the second time, because it certainly didn't. I've seen it like four or five times now since yeah um but uh the scene started the show a little bit but the 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 high points of this movie are just fucking ridiculous uh whether it's just the rock breaking out of a cast or the actual action set pieces themselves it's just a good time (laughs) i just love when uh michelle rodriguez looks at the rock and says i hope you brought the calvary and he turns around and says woman i am the calvary i am the calvary like holy shit man that is yeah. and that gun he has towards the end he's shooting at the helicopters with is like yes. something you'd see out of gi joe the how co- did like, you fire that thing I, it yeah. doesn't matter it really just doesn't that's the thing this yes. movie is is so embedded in the ridiculousness that it has in it that it just doesn't matter you like you, you can't i never once like thought logically well that can't happen because yeah. it's not even like you're just so or, glad it is happening yeah it's fucking furious seven like yeah. when the cars are driving at 100 miles an hour trying to fight tony jaw and that bus and whatever and then all of a sudden um what's his name i'm totally blanking on paul the, walker no or... tyrese goes oh, off yeah. Hit car his car with the um, parachute goes sailing by and it's just it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> it is, and I gotta say, for a franchise that is as ridiculous as the Fast and the Furious franchise certainly is, it's also and we mentioned this on the podcast, but I think it bears repeating since it's been some time. But we shouldn't forget, it's astounding how uh, how wonderful of a send off it is for yes, Paul Walker. I mean, that, I, that, that, that final like five minutes of the film, I just remember sitting in the theater and like. For somebody for me, and I had mentioned before we even did that episode that I like really didn't feel that bad for Paul Walker because I really thought a lot of that was pretty much brought on himself, and like I really 
like felt he's not one of the celebrated actors of our time or anything well, yeah, like that. Well, yeah, and, and the yeah. way he died was kind of like ah, uh, he died as he lived, driving fast cars. Yeah. Well, but it, it, the the way that it was done in the film, it, it actually felt heartfelt, which I, I think is really hard for Hollywood films to do, especially yeah. ones that are trying to be genuine. Right, and that's the thing is that it's be- because the Fast and the Furious franchise always goes all out with this like cheesiness of its uh, action and whatnot. I think that's also why that ending works is that it didn't like hold anything back for feeling too corny or whatever because that's just I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie like or anything really pay tribute uh, to like an actor that had died where I could like genuinely feel how loved he was by the other people. It's not so much that I'm sad because I'm I'm, I'm going to miss him because I didn't know him and I didn't really l- love him, you know, as an actor. I, yeah. I like him. Like, I think he's got charisma or whatever. But, um, like, when I just saw that, it was just so evident of, like, how these people were coming together because there was this loss now that they, they are going to feel for a long time. And that's what broke my heart. And it was just wonderfully handled. Yeah. And, I mean, any film where you can have... <laughs> Uh, where you can have Vin Diesel driving a car from building to building to building is just yeah. is just a good film. So, <laughs> Furious Seven is <laughs> oh, my man. number six, and it is a ridiculous, amazing ride, and I'm going to watch it for years to come. Yeah. Moving on to number five, and uh, starting with Nick. Oh boy! Well, my number five is a film by Noah Baumbach, but it is not While We're Young, which I have said many times that I'm not a fan of. <laughs> uh, but it is his other film of 2015, so he's a very busy guy. Uh, and it's uh, Mistress America starting uh, Greta uh, Gerwig. Uh, Noah Baumbach is one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, I guess I should probably say screenwriters, because he writes all the films that he directs, but it's really his writing that I just completely respond to. Uh, I think he's a good filmmaker, but the characters that he creates and the verbal sparring that they they undertake, so to speak, uh, it's just kind of unparalleled in its... Uh, depending on which camp he's in, because he either makes films that are just so like funny and kind of... Um, uh, witty for the sense of witty's sake, which you know when done right is funny. Uh, or he does things like the Squid and the Whale, where he's really trying to like like cut deep, and which is one of the most depressing films I've ever seen. Um, but it always feels like it's the same voice. And Mistress America was like no no different. And that's where I was ultimately disappointed with While We're Young, is that I, I felt like Noah Baumbach became a Noah Baumbach character and was and indulging in the very things that he usually like mocks. But Mistress America was him returning in for, uh, fine form. And I think part of that is because his new kind of relationship with Greta Gerwig is absolutely the right direction for him and her because when they're together, I mean, uh, Francis Ha was his film from 2013. Me and Toussaint saw that in the theater. Yeah, that was uh, an experience. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've never, like, that was the first time I'd ever watched anything that could be really considered cringe comedy with Toussaint. Yeah. And, oh, boy. Toussaint. That was uh, that was very entertaining. That was a physical experience. <laughs> it was. I was contorting myself into my chair. <laughs> And, uh, and, it, and there was only, like, one other person in the theater, too, so I think, <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, but man. Mistress America shies away from that a little bit. It feels less like something like uh, Lena Dunham's girl, so to speak, and more like uh, like a throwback into, like, Catherine Hepburn's screwball comedies of the 30s. I mean, this Greta Gerwig plays, um, oh, boy, I forget if her name is Brooke or Tracy, because the movie itself centers around the two girls. Um and her character is like this complete uh, whirlwind of <laughs> a lot of things, whether it's like ideas or, you know, because like she's the kind of person that um, feelings. Yeah. She, she's 
things. <laughs> she sees a lot of things. Um, and Greta yes. Gerwig's character was Brooke. Brooke, yes. Okay, so Brooke is a perfect, I would say, Greta Gerwig character because she is a uh, a person that, as one person in the movie describes her as, oh no, like she, like she, I did steal her idea because like somebody gets rich off of something that Brooke, like someone's. Brooke says she invented it. She didn't. She just had the idea. And then when somebody questions her about that, she's like, no, that's that's her thing. She's a, she's a wonderful idea person. She just never commits to anything. And that's kind of her whole way of going through life is that, like, she, you know, she says things and then she'll drop them at the beat of a hat because she doesn't like to, uh, I would say, stew in any one particular emotion or uh, – and I'm making it sound like a drama and it's really not um, because what – really knocked me off my feet is that I don't think I've seen a film as funny for me personally in like the last five years as Mistress America. There's, um, it's a very short film. It's 80 minutes. And at the 40 minute mark, the, uh, five characters find themselves, including Brooke and Tracy, the two characters played by Greta Gerwig and Loa Kirk and kind of like two other stragglers, uh, who are, <laughs> shouldn't really even be there, but that's part of the humor. Um, accidentally find themselves at reconnecting with one of Brooke's old flames from the past. And there are other people at their house. And then it becomes this, I'm talking like the rest of the movie is devoted to what just happens in this one house and everybody playing off of each other. And people are walking in and out of the frame as they add jokes. And it was just, uh, it was just one of the funniest things I've, I've, I've seen. Seems like classic stage comedy almost. Yes, there is. Um, there's a scene where it literally becomes when somebody's secret is revealed that they kind of had a secret. Um, like they, it's it cuts to a scene of everybody else like in the shot and like huddled over each other, staring at um, you know the character, and then they put her on trial essentially, and like oh. like she's trying to defend herself, and then like nope, and then she, like Brooke is just perfectly enunciated uh, like I'm not done. Bitch, like <laughs> it is just like I was just not prepared for the 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 screwball uh, uh, energy that everybody in this movie uh, brought, and, and that goes all the way down to the characters that only have one line, and maybe that's their only purpose is to walk into the frame, say something completely ridiculous or unrelated, and then just walk out. And um, so that's why it's just it reaffirmed why I do still love Noah Baumbach and. Uh, yeah, I think Greta Gerwig is maybe for me my favorite current working actress. I think hmm. she's uh, she's she hasn't had any roles that I would say are like you know showy in the sense that like she hasn't done something like extremely dramatic or you know the kind of like Oscar bait type whatever. But I I don't think there's something she can't do, and I, I look forward to hopefully more and more people realizing what a talent she is. So. So why my number five is Mistress America by uh, Noah Baumbach. Very nice. Moving on to Toussaint. All right. <clears throat> my number five is George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. Now, I know that we did an episode on this, and I had a very effusive uh, appraisal of this movie when I first came out. It's like, if I can remember correctly, like I gave it a four and a half. I recently rewatched I gave it a three out of... Out of five. Wow. And I and think it's still in your top six, really? I think it's still in my top six okay. for, for a lot of reasons. And if you will allow me, I would like to paraphrase from a review by one of my favorite critics. Um, oh, Toussaint, that's very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually you. Wait, what? <laughs> it is actually oh, you. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. I was actually just yeah. kidding. <laughs> is Fury Road one of the most original and thrilling studio-made films in the past decade? Absolutely. Does that mean it's a great film? Not entirely. Too frequently... 
Fury Road gets stuck in first gear for a film that's supposedly framed by a live-or-die car chase. The way it handles its character seems subversive at first, but ultimately ends in a shallow and pointless mess. This is Tom Hardy's Mad Max film, but it's Charlie Theron's Furiosa story, and yet only Nicholas Holt's Huck Nux had anything resembling a satisfying dramatic arc. Okay, I want to have this discussion with you on the appraisal of this being in my, my top five, okay. like right right now. Let's go. Okay, I agree with you on a lot of those points. I think that upon rewatching it, that a lot of the the action, though on first appraisal, like it was it was exhilarating. It was beautiful. It is beautiful. It is a it is a damn beautiful film with really great practical special effects. But I feel like there was only one. Uh, significant fight scene that really stuck out to me, and I'll probably like talk about that later. Um, but when we're talking about it being Mad Max's movie and Charlize Theron's like story, like I know that you haven't seen like the other Mad Max films, but that's actually typical of okay. the Mad Max genre. Like he is the wanderer, he is the road warrior, he is the man who goes from one place to another. Really, Mad Max One is his story. Road Warrior is is him going and helping out an outpost from like a a bunch of like marauders and Thunderdome. I haven't seen Thunderdome, so I can't really speak to that. But so these aren't like James Bond's movies where it's like it's always Bond's mission, so to speak. It's, it seemed more like something I brought up on a previous episode of the Week Review mm-hmm. of the Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman's, mm-hmm. uh, the Japanese franchise, where Zatoichi goes into a village and he always has to help out other people, so to speak. Yeah, it's never really his story. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I admitted that I had never seen any of the Mad yeah, Max. Yeah, that, that's movies. that's actually totally the same vibe as as the Mad Max uh, okay. franchise, and I would. Very much love to see, like, more, like, Mad Max films, but it's been kind of, like, iffy. Like, there was reports that George Miller was like, I'm never going to make another one again, and then he said that he wouldn't make another one. It's like, you know what, whichever way the coin flips, I thought that this was a great movie. It would be yeah. great to see, like, this springboard into a new series of Mad Max films while we still have George Miller among us and able to, like, make films like this. But, um... Yeah, I thought. I mean, it... I was harsh on it, but I, I, I absolutely think that more movies like Mad Max should get made. So you, it's not you were so, harsh I just... on it for the right reasons, not because you were harsh on it the way that I'm harsh on like Prometheus, in that I see what it could be, and that was that's what infuriates me about right. it. Like it could be so much better. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. like Mad Max Fury Road was just a re- really weird film for me because I like, I think everybody except for Nick who really went and saw it the first time mm-hmm. was loved it and really enjoyed the ride. And then the second time we saw it, I just remember being slightly disappointed because yeah. it didn't, didn't, didn't match up with my feeling after the first viewing of yeah. it. And I feel like that isn't really the norm. Like a lot of people still absolutely think it's a masterpiece yeah. almost. And that's totally fine. Cause I see why they still think that. But I, I guess for me, I felt like some parts of it were just boring the second time. I really. feel you. Yeah. I, 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 there's there's some scenes that I still really enjoy, like after when they're they're fighting against the bullet farmer and he has like those those double double barrel like like guns he's shooting off of them and like Furiosa is like buffering her 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 rifle on Max's shoulder and like shoots out the light and when they finally like get through that entire fight and they're going through like the actual like murky expanse and you see these guys on stilts walking through I made this joke on the original episode but it really does look like the music video from Gautier's eyes <laughs> eyes wide open I was like who the fuck are these guys with their eyes wide open <laughs> walk the well and I still think that uh, the scene involving the the first time we really get a, the chase in the in the film when Furiosa 
has left left the citadel and now they are trying to chase her other mm-hmm. people are chasing her down uh we have tom hardy on the front of the the car the war van that's mm-hmm. chasing him and he's getting fucking arrows thrown past his head and that shit like that first chasing is so great in, on so many levels and it, i just remember watching that thinking wow this is so ridiculously amazing and it really was and i feel like that's the problem though is that other parts of the film just kind of bring it down and never really recaptures exactly what that scene had. Yeah, and part of my reaction, too, was, uh, I will admit, oversaturation to the fact that I think that this was a, an extremely memeable movie. I mean, and became a shorthand for feminist cinema that I don't think it quite deserved. But I'm also, I shouldn't really, I'm not an authority, nor should I be mm-hmm. uh, a, a figure on what qualifies feminist cinema. Mm-hmm. But... That didn't stop a lot of other people. Well, from... as a cisgendered white man, I think this about feminism. Yes, and, I, and I'm like, you know. <laughs> oh God, and, you're going to get ripped apart. And it's not so much that I don't think we should praise something like this, but I, I just don't know that this extremely cartoonish fight against patriarchy should be the gold standard for, uh, I think, what. Um, I think it's it, it's something you can teach in schools because it's very obvious and you can look at it and you can say, see how they're mistreating their sex slaves and you know we are whatever. But I I'm just way more enthralled by I would say subversive stories about women uh, that don't I would say that don't lean on such something that like physical I, violence. Yeah, or not even that, but just I would say just there's barely anything that separates the story. I'll say, um, and I'm not talking about George Miller's world, but from like a Michael Bay point of view, as far as like I mean, when the when the wives are introduced, they're hosing off, and I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm not saying that like the camera shots were completely hey man, they get whatever. dirty. What they get dirty? They do, but I'm just saying like uh, there, there were moments when I'm like, okay, are we? Are are these even characters uh, besides Furiosa and the one who kind of likes Nux, you know? I, or are they just uh, uh, silly Kravitz. Yeah. Silly so Kravitz. all I'm saying is I, I it just kind of bothered me that like that that this story was the one that was going to be touted off as like the end of like yes we need to do this over and over. And it's like no 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 no. The point is we should have been doing this for a long time and we need to move past this as well. Um, and and start just putting females where men just like Daisy Ridley in Star Wars. I think that's a way better feminist statement uh, than somebody like Furiosa. But that's I'm only bringing that up because that's just kind of the the after effect of like it's that's still being talked about. It's to this still in the same line as science fiction, and it's still like a very hot button. Yeah. Like not even hot button, but it is is a a a, a starting point of a conversation. Yeah. But but I absolutely loved its uh, its use of. Things like practical effects and like it, it's uh, and it's economic use of its like budget and like it didn't just rely on CG or mm-hmm. anything like that. So yeah, cool. And just uh, just wrapping that up, like it, it this this entire segment for for Mad Max really just kind of encompasses what I re- really do enjoy about like talking about film with my film tank peers and that I am able to disagree with Nick, yeah. but I I always As have you to should. I always have to respect like the thoroughness of your of your arguments well thank you yeah i'm really glad we did this episode yeah awesome <laughs> we, we just done now you, you yeah. just got a big compliment we can just shut her down here yeah. somebody read the rest of my list when it comes to me <laughs> and that's my number five mad max fury road nice right shiny and chrome <laughs> i like it so uh, my number five was actually outside of my uh, top six until last week when uh, it made its triumphant return into my top six is uh it had been a film that was teetering around my top 10 pretty much for the whole year. And then I saw it for the second time on Blu-ray 
and uh, I was enthralled enough to move it up into my top six and actually at my number five, and that is, uh, pardon me, that is Ridley Scott's The Martian, which I actually thought was a fantastic film, which I, I, I really like the first time we went and saw it in the theater, but I feel like the second time through and getting to watch it and, and actually paying attention to all the things and not worrying about what the story is going to be and what the outcome is going to be and just looking at the small little details of the film, I just absolutely love this film for a number of reasons. I thought it was a it was an okay film. I thought it was a better comedy. Oh boy, it was a great comedy. It was so <laughs> Hey, funny. you and the Golden Globes both. Yep, <laughs> yep. I, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> that was so amazing. Well, yeah. I feel like the the thing about it is I'm all about science fiction and being cool with the fiction part of that. So yeah. Yeah. Um, people who are sticklers for uh, the Neil. science part of it. Yeah, we, we, we know who we're talking Neil. about here. Uh, Neil deGrasse Don't look at Tyson. me when you say Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> I'm looking at Iron Man. Oh, yeah? Behind you. Oh, yeah, you're looking at Iron Man? Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at, at most, like, a science fiction film, like, has, has two different... It has two different baselines. Either you're you're trying to like go for scientific plausibility or internal consistency. And I think at least in even though it didn't really like scratch my itch in that in that kind of category, I thought that it was it achieved a balance of of both. And I think that that makes it a, a good science fiction film. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing for me that that made this really a fantastic film is that I kind of had not given up on Ridley Scott, but just assumed that everything he was going to put out was going to be garbage from now on. And this was just to make science movies. I I guess so because I really did enjoy Prometheus. And then this film comes along and it, I thought was really fantastic. And I think what I liked most about it is just the little subtleties of, of space that are brought into this film and also of, of life on Mars for, for Mark Watney of him, sort of living and, and growing potatoes and using certain things and, and just figuring out water and how to make more water than he has. And I think other little parts, like their their space vehicle that has the, the rotating rooms, so that's how they're able to create gravity and people, and you see them flying from room to room. And I just thought that was so cool and I just didn't even really think about it the first time and the second time through, yeah. I was like, man, that's fucking awesome. I, I love that. Yeah. You could say that Matt Damon went through his own great potato famine. <laughs> This guy, <laughs> I, uh, I I was a fan of the movie, and yeah. I, I'd, even putting the science part of aside, which I, I did enjoy the first time through for sure, I, I did rewatch it actually about yeah. a week ago, and I it basically stayed exactly where it was, which is to say that I still enjoy it, and I think what I'm particularly drawn into is I love the fact that it took, and I'm not saying no other space movie has done this before because they have, but I don't know if like another space movie I would say devoted. I would say an equal amount of time to like the logistics of this. Like instead of like it, like I never felt like I was on the edge of my seat on if they would rescue Mark Watney, but just like how were they going to get to the next step? And I don't just mean Mark Watney's own stuff about like how to farm or whatever, but just like how they were going to continue on their end, whether it be with PR concerns or with um, like just trying to establish communication. I would say from that aspect, the one film that comes to mind for me is Apollo 13. Right. And that's, I, that's what I meant by like, I, I not that another film has done oh, that, okay. but it's just kind of, that's an itch. I do like to be scratched. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Um, and I'm glad. That, yeah, Sorry. <laughs> but I'm glad another film. You know, it's been a while, and so another film with you know even better CGI and whatever can tell a kind of I would say a new tale too because it's a person stranded on a planet, you know, mm-hmm. which is a much different thing. Um, and uh, that's so that's why I was just. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Apollo 13, even though I I really like that movie. Yeah, it's a really nice telling of a tale, and I feel like it stays I, true to what what the actual story was. Right, and I think the, the only thing that I guess what I'm responding to in the Martian that I might not but I have to rewatch Apollo 13 mm-hmm. to confirm is that Ron Howard directed Apollo 13, yes. right? And he tends to get a little more sentimental than I think Ridley Scott does. Uh, whereas like Ridley Scott, I like the way that the script economizes all these things where it's, it's mostly logistical. And then we get to that scene of him in the, in the, the rope, not the rover, the, the, Whatever that shit yeah. that he has to take and like his kind of breakdown in between uh, the moment where he has to leave this planet and hope he'll make it to the next one. Like I, I just love that outburst and well, that kind of thing. Another thing about it too, and this was something that Emily mentioned that I actually didn't even think about, which I think is a credit to this film and kind of what you're talking about right now, is that she's like, well, is like his wife disappointed that he's not, or is he disappointed? I don't think he has a wife. And I don't think they yep. ever really mention, uh, other than his one line about wanting to go have Jessica Chastain's character tell his parents about right. his his yeah. his journey on Mars. Right. That's really the only connection we have to anything to yes. him living on Earth. And that's his. what I would call the Ron Howard touch, which I don't think is a bad thing, because I like Ron Howard movies when they're good, mm-hmm. um, is that like th- there wasn't this forcible, like, well, we need to have human entities for him to connect to, because then why are we going to care for him if people aren't going to lose him? But the fact that we never meet the parents is another thing I think is a pretty telling sign. It's just the idea that this man shouldn't die alone on a planet is, is all the emotional resonance you need. And, and the, film, the film and the script absolutely knew that. And also, too, it just um it just really showed how important one person was even if they're just one person and trying to make an effort even if it costs you all this money and time and whatever to to bringing one person home from this and in terms of the positive message and the 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 sort of you can do anything like world war ii feeling that you get from this film is is really uh i would say kind of a brings a smile to my face on I know it did the first time and the second time and and just going back to what I initially said about it about how we have the the marrying of science and fiction in this film and I think they're brought together so well it's just uh, great and the CGI in this film is fantastic just right on par with Prometheus and looking yeah. looking fantastic and I I feel like that's another thing that it, it, and a lot of people have talked about categories that need to be added to the Academy Awards or any other awards show. But I think we really need to spe- we need to separate best visual effects. We need to have best physical visual effects and best computer-generated physical effects because I feel like this should win best visual effects – and Mad Max also should win Best Visual Effects, for but sure. for two different, totally different reasons. For sure. I actually watched at least part of a behind-the-scenes thing that I also picked up the Blu-ray of mm-hmm. The Martian. And one thing that I was like surprised by, but in a great way, is that it, the moment that I thought they were using CG was not, they huh. weren't. And the moment that I just didn't realize, and I think that's that's how you should use it, in a way where your eye is not drawn to it. For example, when Jeff Daniels gives a press conference, everything behind him is... Uh, behind him is three uh not three the 
uh, CGI. Really? Like, outside that window. Huh. Like, that's a fake room, so to speak. And that's pretty much all the offices in that NASA, whatever, all the backdrops behind, they, they must have been man-made sets uh, with, you know, green screens behind them. Hmm. But, like, everything, and it's not that I didn't think that they didn't go to a desert, but, like, almost everything that he does out on, quote-unquote, Mars is, like, pretty much real because, you know, there's no real aliens or anything like that. Yeah. So it's, like, you just got to find. But just the, the way they filtered it just made it, just completely brought it to life, and that's what practical effects can do. Uh, and what CGI can do because I didn't notice that the first or two times that I watched it and it really works and it really just shows how far CG has come because it it really looks great in this film and uh, you know credit to to Ridley and that whole crew for for making a film that really feels real even when a lot of the the effects aren't so for sure that is my number five Ridley Scott's The Martian moving on to number four and Nick with his uh, fourth choice well my number four is a film by uh, Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi. It's called Taxi, and an alternative title is Jafar Panahi's Taxi. Um, I feel like I should give some context for this movie. And I've, never, I've never heard of this, so no context would be good. Is. So um, Jafar Panahi is a very acclaimed, currently working uh, filmmaker in Iran, and he is currently undergoing a 20-year ban from filmmaking because of the very harsh and strict censors uh, that are being placed by the Iranian government. On, Surprising. Like, yeah, about like what you can have in your film and what you can't, and you can't say anything bad about the government. You can't show anything that's realistically like harsh, like... You can't even like tell a film about like poverty, even if you're not blaming the government. You know, it's just like those kind of strict rules. The, the, the films are for entertainment purposes only, uh, and nothing. You know, so it's just that kind of thing. And I, I don't actually know the inciting incident. Like, I don't know which film of his uh, set you know the government off, and which one it was that they came down on him. But he about two years ago, the ban was put in place, and he also had to spend eighty something days under house arrest and while he was under house arrest he made a movie <laughs> called this is not a film and it it was a it was the camera and it was documenting documenting him not making a movie just kind of like going around his house and you know it's definitely an acquired taste because a lot of people would i assume watch it and just say well what was that because it it the title is not misleading so to speak but it also does call into questions like kind of what is art and what do we accept and whatnot so now that his now that his uh oh yeah the mention of that actually reminds me of that uh Ai Weiwei uh documentary is like the fake trial it actually do you know about that no like it's it's basically like Ai Weiwei was this uh he is this this Chinese like activist and artist who was basically um put under house arrest by uh, the Chinese government over tax fraud. And I already told you about this before. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Where like, there that. is – nobody pays taxes, so how yes. can he be under tax fraud? So literally the fake trial is like this camera that basically follows him around and like basically takes mostly um, like like photos of him like at his own home, like talking to people about this and stuff. Oh, I – What's the, the name of the film itself? It's the called? Fake Trial. The Fake Trial. I'm yeah. going to have to look that up. Yeah. Well, uh, similar to that – um, so after his house arrest, Jafar Panahi is now able to go outside and, um, he is still not done making movies because nothing is going to stop him. And I, I think that's half of what endears me to his latest stretch of filmography. Um, but, uh, so his latest one is called Taxi and he essentially just took a camera, mounted it on his dashboard, mounted one behind in the back seat and put them on swivel so he could turn them at any 
uh, points notice, and he became a cab driver, and he just started picking people up. Cinema verite. And it is, although he plays with that concept, too, because at one point, for example, uh, he picks up somebody who's like a DVD bootlegger, uh, and he's going to a client's house, and the guy's not shy at all about talking what he's, he's like, you know, what do you got in the bag? Oh, these are, you know, boobies that are banned by the Iranian government that I'm going to go sell to people and whatnot. And he's like, oh, that's great, because the guy goes, I know who you are, and he goes, oh, yeah? And he goes, yeah, Jafar, Mr. Panahi, and he goes, yeah, and he kind of smiles, you know, and um, he's like, Which, you got any one of my movies in there? <laughs> and he's like, no. But anyway, while that's happening, and then he picks up another customer who um, he like almost slams on the brakes, and um, this person's been shot, and he gets him into his taxi and with the the person's wife, and there he's like, we got to stop at the hospital first before I take you, whatever. And so this this scene ensues, you know, whatever. And he drops him off, and then the guy to the left of him, you know, the the original customer, turns to him and says, "You didn't really think I'd fall for that, did you?" So it's like characters in the movie are commenting on whether what is actually happening is real or not. And the movie never really once uh, gives any definitive answers on whether any of these people are real or if they're all actors. Or if oh, my God. Um, but the movie is also not out to really trick you either. It's just a set of vignettes, uh, of sketches, essentially, um, of people getting in and out of his taxi. And it's a 70-something minute movie. It's very quick, and so it doesn't like test your patience. But... I don't think any movie just kind of exhilarated me more on the idea of like watching a film create itself as I'm watching it, uh, and and it had humor, it, you know, it had pathos, and it might not have a, a a story so to speak, but I I was just on the edge of my seat to see what, who he would pick up next and what that would add to the uh, to the narrative and 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 what that means is like so is this a film or is it not and uh, and I'm just I'm blown away by what what one man is able to do under uh, you know restrictions so to speak uh, and it's just he, he's uh, he's a talent to watch for sure it's like a more realistic but no less surreal version of Holy Motors yeah actually that's uh, I didn't even think about that but yeah. it's a lot like that where. It's like that movie we know is fiction because yeah. we can see the the scenes, so to speak. But it's like as if somebody just did that cinema verite style, mm-hmm. uh, and what, but it's not trying to be surreal, so to speak. But um, like if, if Holy Motors is real, like what college do I need to go to in order to get the degree to get that job? Yeah, that would be pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, um, or terrifying. <laughs> yeah, so that's why uh, the yeah Jafar Panahi is my number four. It's just uh, I haven't seen anything quite like it, and I probably never will again. It's great. And what's it called again? Uh, it's called Taxi, but you might find it under the full name of Jafar Panahi's Taxi. Okay. Um, when you actually watch it, like if you find it anywhere, I know it's on iTunes, it's on a lot of rental services. It, I don't even think it has credits because it can't legally. So it doesn't even like, like when you when you find it in a store, it'll say Taxi or whatever. But like when you press play, it'll just start like hmm. somebody just turned on a camera, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's great. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. My number four is... World of Tomorrow by Don Hertzfeld. Great um, choice. Yes. Uh, this is actually a film that I learned about through you, Nick, and I've always been a fan of Don Hertzfeld. I've, like, I've, I love his rejected cartoons and all of his stuff. He is a, a virtuosic like animator's animator. Like if, if you want to learn how to be like a funny animator or, or a very heartfelt animator, you have to like look at Don Hertzfeld. Yeah. And this 16-minute film manages to cram in more science fiction profundity than most like major tentpole like two hour films like i was i was amazed i was shocked i was i was 
reeling over with laughter at this short over the course of like 16 minutes and i almost didn't want it to end but i think it's so perfect where it where it is yeah like it's without spoiling anything it's the story of this little girl named emily who is uh visited by this mysterious woman who basically tells her about the world of tomorrow and eventually transports her to the world of tomorrow for one very important purpose and that is all I'm going to to leave it at. Like any more, I would just be spoiling it. But what I want to say is that uh, Don Hertzfeld absolutely deserves the award for best animated short at this Academy Award. If he does not get it for World of Tomorrow, like like already like the Academy like disparages and belittles science fiction. It already thinks so little of animation, and for the fact that he was able to make such a damn good film. For his first digital film, digitally animated film, yep. 16 minutes, and it's able to be this good and, and is able to rival other – That's hilarious too. It is. It the, is. It the is voice a, casting for Emily. Yeah. Like I, I don't know if it was an actual child, but mm-hmm. there's no way I don't think it could not have been because uh, just some of those line readings are just perfect. so great in the face of what they're actually like dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like for him to not get this like – the system is is if the system was not already broke, it's already broke as fuck. I okay? I mean I think it's a it's astounding that he actually got nominated just because I was surprised that the Academy uh, was going to look in that direction. So I I, mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything I don't think else uh, nominated for animated short unless Lava was nominated. I swear <laughs> to God, if Lava gets this over, I love Oh you. my God, I, I'm going to have a conniption. Um, uh. <laughs> but without even seeing the other nominations, I don't know that another person right now is in the same field uh, in the animated short world. And I I I like to shorts you know that he originally did back you know like a decade ago, like Rejected yeah. and uh, Billy's Balloon and all those with some teeth um those are all great and and i love them but they also feel like one note jokes mm-hmm. like in a good way i mean they only last like two to three minutes so it's not like it overstates welcome uh but his i would say his upswing with like profundity uh starting with the bill trilogy which is probably my favorite thing he's done the, uh, it's such a beautiful day trilogy that comprises yeah. of his three shorts starring the bill characters my favorite thing he's done but with the world of tomorrow i'd say like i would think kind of is an evolution even from that and looking at less at the character like because it doesn't really focus on emily so much as it focuses on this world that she inhabits and what that means and just all the implications i'm not going to spoil it either but this is a film that simultaneously made me crack up and also worry about my own mortality and existence Mm -hmm. and and whether it's uh has a point (laughs) exactly yeah it's 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 incredible like in in going back to your point about like not knowing if there's anybody else like in his lane right now, like making films on his level, like I've been out of the loop for a while, but I know that there are exceptional student animated films coming out of France right now, out of okay. Europe. Um, one of my favorite animators, a uh, French animator by the name of uh, Jeremy Perrin. He hasn't made any shorts, but he does a lot of music videos and like little comic sketches. I think that like if he really like put put knuckle put knuckle to the table like he could make a, a film on yeah. this level and unfortunately it's 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 people like don Hertzfeld that we don't get enough of because this society just kind of 
doesn't make it very viable for them to really exist. Uh, I mean, you know, he's putting out a, <coughs> excuse me, um, he's putting out a Blu-ray, Don Herzfeld, of everything he's ever done, including all the old shorts, the 90-minute Bill trilogy, and this new World of Tomorrow all-on-one Blu-ray, but that had to be kickstarted just to get made, and it's not because he is going to sell it to a studio or anything like that, but he just doesn't have the money to do it, and he knows so many people wanted to actually own it physically and in high definition, because he also did new color passes through everything with the original 35 or whatever millimeter negative on the film um and so it's kind of like it's just to see that that he had to kickstart his own just to release really uh his whole uh catalog it's just crazy um his entire venture is, like is nobody's funded. gonna want to do it uh yeah. if they see how hard it is to do but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't because every once in a while at least somebody like don Hersfeld does slip through the crack thank god yeah uh, and kind of makes it so to speak his entire venture is is funded by him selling dvds <laughs> off of his own website so. yeah and so, most of those are out of print now because he can't make yeah <laughs> more than he could feasibly make so yeah, yeah. So that's my number four, World of Tomorrow by Don Hertzfeld. It's currently on Netflix Instant right now, if anybody wanted to check it out. Mm -hmm. I've been meaning to, and I think 16 minutes is enough time, so (laughs) I think I will... uh, I say it's an easier sell than like the Bill Trilogy, which is a 90-minute film. And if you like World of Tomorrow and you haven't seen uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day, then go from that immediately to the next one, because I think it's even more beautiful in in some ways. Yes. Hmm. Okay, very good. So my number four on my list is a uh, film directed by a guy who hasn't really been around too much, but I think will get a a bigger role at some point and uh, get a bigger chance at some point, and that is Alex Garland's Ex Machina, a film that you uh, mentioned in your honorable mentions, Nick, and we had a uh, a really good episode talking about Ex Machina in depth. We made some great points. Yes. I think we did. I yeah. Think. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I listened back to that episode and I was like, damn, I said that? I yeah, like, right? Yeah. I, I thought the same thing when I listened back to it, too. We did had some yeah. really nice comparisons. Uh, and, and this was just a really, really well done film. And I think, uh, I, I don't want to call it a breakout film necessarily for anybody who was in it, but um, Alyssa Vikander, Dom Hall Gleason, and Oscar Isaac both seem to be very much on the upswing. And I don't really think that's by accident. But I think this is a film that you can look back to early on in 2015 and even when this film was technically kind of released in late 2014 when it started appearing at some festivals and that kind of thing. You see this as these people are going to be popular in the future and look here they all are as they are like brimming towards popularity. I think this is On the cusp of popularity. Yeah, and I think this film really shows how talented all three of those actors are because they really fulfill what their characters are and each one of them has actually a a surprising arc throughout the film and it just works really well together and this film has such a fabulous ending to it that it just is it makes you think at the same time it also totally horrifying yeah and totally resist uh going places where everybody would think it would go Mm -hmm. you know and, and and making it overly schlocky so to speak uh I just love the subtlety of the ending, too. Yeah, and I thought it it really was kind of held back, but at the same time moved forward into something that was, I would thought, was surprising the first time I saw it. And I I think just the, just the, the, like, the feeling that I got from watching this film and and some of the actions that happened, especially late in the film, especially when uh, Alyssa Vikander's character stabs Oscar Isaac, and the effortless, like the effortless. It was the most cool. It was the most unpassionate stabbing I've ever seen. And it was that almost was, robotic. And, and that's and that's what's so Stop unnerving bitch. about it. It was just like, 
suits. By the way, I think it's really cute that both Vikander and Michael Fassbender have both played robots because they're dating and they're both little robots. No, oh, that's cute, isn't it? <laughs> but <laughs> what? Because <laughs> he was in Prometheus. Come on, get yeah. it together. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're both, what? They're both little like androids. Oh yeah, yeah. With his little head Role smiling play. up out of the duffel bag. <laughs> anyway. But uh, Ex Machina was a fabulous film that I'll watch many times uh, for years to come. I owned it on Blu-ray as soon as it came out. And if anyone hasn't got a chance to see it yet, it's a fantastic film that unfortunately slipped through the cracks, I think, a little bit earlier this year and uh, was not on a lot of people's radar. But I think it is a film that eventually will make it to Netflix or somewhere like that. And uh, it'll be one of these films that not necessarily quite like Memento, but catches on a lot uh, in years to come. For sure. It's got cult status. I mean, it's already kind of there in some ways, because I, I did talk to some people that surprised me that they'd already seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's not already there, it'll be headed there soon, as far as I'm sure everybody's going to like say, have you seen Ex Machina at some point? Yep. It's definitely, I feel like, one of those films, and I I love so many things about it. And, and we talked about it on the episode, but I feel like the the even the small scene in this film, like the scene where... Um, Oscar Isaac and Dom Hall Gleason are, are talking about how he actually got artificial intelligence to work and describing the brain of, of and, yep. and how that actually ends up working. I'm like, that actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, like gel over wires and that. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, for yeah. sure. And it, it just was just awesome to see that in this film. And I, I loved it uh, both times, or actually all three times I've seen it. And I look forward to watching it uh, again, as I mentioned for years to come. So that is Alex Garland's Ex Machina. And that closes out the first half of our list. And on to Nick's number three of 2015. Oh, boy. My number three is, got to make sure I got the director right, uh, is a film, I believe it was a 2014 film technically, but uh, it did not even get reviewed by publications until January of 2015. So I'm I'm barely getting it in there. Uh, But it is Peter Strickland's The Duke of Burgundy. This is a film that's currently streaming on instant Netflix, if anybody is so enraptured after I talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the best love stories I think I've ever seen uh, committed to film. It's it's about two women who are involved in an S&M relationship, uh, and yet it never once feels like exploitative. It's, it's, a lot of people have pointed out already, a lot of smarter people than me, that it's shot uh, like those kind of like 70s, like Italian softcore, like the lighting is just like kind of Huey, like brown and kind of orange, whatever. So it's like when you first start it, you might be thinking you're getting into something that's going to be very titillating, but A, there's never any nudity ever. Uh, It's way more about the actual role playing. And and it really dives into like questions about like what we do for the ones we love. Consent. Exactly. And also... Consent and the balance of of power and reciprocity. Pretty much exactly. It's like, have you seen it? No, I'm I know, good. but you're pretty much describing it exactly. And yeah. and it's like what will allow like if it. It's kind of like the question like if it doesn't like affect you. For example, like if you indulge in your significant other's fetish and you don't care that this is happening, uh, but then you do it so many times because you don't care and the other person wants it to be done, then it's kind of like how that can even take a toll because then there there is a shift in like, well, if we're only, like, if this doesn't bring me any pleasure, then do we have to do it every time? And there, there's a great scene, I think, that per- perfectly illuminates what's so difficult about being in this relationship, and yet I never once doubt 
that these two people are in love. They they clearly are, and that's what makes it one of the best relationship movies I've ever seen. It's not that I ever thought that they were going to like get to a point where they, you know, there's no turning back, but it was just kind of like, how are they going to move from one point to another? And there's a scene when one of the, 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 the women in the relationship asked her to like say, uh, to tell her, you know, that she loves her. And so she starts to say, like, she's like, I love you. I can't think whatever. And then she's like, start talking dirty and and it's kind of like that woman's discomfort with the idea that that's not her exact perception of what love is Mm. um even though she knows that that doesn't you know that's not her language and how both people have to compromise uh to make the other happy i mean this is a extremely romantic movie that features a very straight-faced discussion about one of them being a human toilet (laughs) this is this is not for everybody but um it's it's if anybody's willing to sit through it, which I don't know why, like, even if you, which you shouldn't be because you shouldn't judge other people, but even if you're grossed out or something by S&M or whatever, this really doesn't, like, a lot of that kind of quote-unquote action happens behind a closed door and we just hear it, or um, it's like the camera's focused on something else. Uh, but putting all of that aside, this is one of the most beautifully directed movies I think I've ever seen. It might be, uh, out of my top three, the the movie I would call a perfect film, so to speak. I might like the next two I'll talk about later a little more because they're just way more in my interest, but I don't know that I could find a single fault in this movie from the performances to the cinematography. There's a dream sequence, uh, I would say about 20 minutes left in the movie that happens. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the two women are a is a uh, butterfly expert. Like she's just really into butterflies. She has like a collection of them. And in, in real life, or yes. The, okay. In in like in their, um, like in in the film. In, okay. Yeah. Um, and which is also kind of an interesting detail because it's kind of like what what one person like you know fetishizes another person doesn't. It doesn't mean that she fetishizes butterflies in her sexual activity. It's just like, it's just another little detail where you look at that in the same way you'd look at S&M and you, you just like, I don't know why that person is fascinated by that. She's a lepidotrist. <laughs> yeah. Is that what a butterfly yeah. expert is? Yeah. I, yeah. Only, I only know that because I watch Venture Brothers. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. man. I should have picked up on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what she is. And there's a, one of her dream sequences when she's kind of starting to somewhat pull away from her partner. Um, uh, there's a lot of imagery of butterflies in her kind of nightmare, so to speak. And the sound design uh, and the images on screen re- resembles uh, some of Stan Brockage's uh, experimental films from the 60s. And he made a film called Mothlight, which is a three-minute film you can watch it on YouTube, uh, where he, like, burned... Uh, not even burned, but he kind of scratched actual celluloid and created different colors and... and if the director did not mean to uh, make an homage to that, then mm. then he's plagiarizing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if he just meant to make a homage to it, it's just one of the most like gorgeous things I've ever seen committed to film. Uh, as the sound of like a thousand butterflies are like flying through your entire room, even if you have a small speaker, like it's just so well uh, tuned. S- yeah, tuned yeah. and precise. Um, and and I love the completely I wouldn't say optimistic message, but the fact that this movie is about these two people who love each other and never lose sight of that. Uh, they go through some rough patches, and uh, and they certainly have problems that, like I would say, your average I'm not saying normal or typical, but your average couple might not have. There, it's still rooted in every fight that every couple does have. You know, who's right, who's wrong, who should be allowed to to have this leeway and who shouldn't, and and just just the the wearisome that comes with I uh, I would assume 
with spending your entire life with somebody and all that that entails. So, um, I, I don't know if you mentioned it. Maybe you did, and I just totally whiffed on it. But yeah. but about how old are both of these people? They're well. That's the thing. One I would say because they never say. Mm-hmm. One I would say is definitely middle age, whereas the other one is. I would say slightly younger. I mean, not creepily young or anything like okay. that, but like one is probably late twenties and the other one's probably in their forties or maybe she's early thirties, mm. but there's probably a good decade of a difference. Uh, okay. And that's another thing too, as far as like what one's perspective on like kind of the changing title shift in what, uh, what love might mean to another younger generation. I, I think there's so much to this film and I can't wait to watch it again. I've only seen it once, but um, it's a film that, starts off a little slow um but that's by design because when you first watch it you won't it's almost like uh i want to say it's almost like something like uh, ingmar bergman's persona or moholland drive you won't realize that what you're watching is not what's the true reality of what you're watching until it breaks and then you and then you start to fill in the blanks and then you start to realize what's real and what's not who's actually submissive and who isn't uh and and that's where the film really grabs you and and then starts digging into really uh universal themes so that was uh it was easily maybe the best directed film i've seen all year that was uh peter strickland's the duke of burgundy nice yeah so my number 3 is a film that we have already covered on film tank and it is a film that has already been discussed on this episode. Oh. My number three is Ex Machina ah. by Alex Garland. It's like Alex is already like warmed up and he's already like told you like a lot of the stuff of what I really enjoyed about it. But I also want to pay note to um, the the expert architectural design, the setting of the of the actual like compound where Oscar Isaac's character of Nathan like has like Donald Gleason's character like come and it just, like shows him his his myriad of wonders from the future. <laughs> yeah. Um I thought that the the performances of all three involved was was incredible but also uh Kyoko, I can't remember the the actor who I mean it's 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 I think that's even in service of how well she acted in that way because like her character never speaks and she's meant her she is designed to be seen and not heard yeah. and i think that's even more insidious that that performance was so well that it even plays into how i remember that character in that performance i think that it's it's probably one of the most profound experiences that i've had in the theater like this year just because like going back to uh what i might have said on the the, the previous episode for this like it had me like Whenever a question was posed to Donald Gleason's character, I interpreted the question as it was posed to me. And what did I think about that? What was my favorite color? What are my memories about my parents? Like, what is my idea of personhood and identity and and, and agency and and of life and that general general idea? And just kind of like boiling it down to the to the bare bones premise that there are these two men, and. Is, is there these two men and their interpretation and their evaluation of another like being's existence that happens to be of 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 female like yeah like, and that's persona. the other thing that we didn't I don't think we didn't go into too big of detail in our actual episode review but yeah. it is yes two men talking interpreting a a woman's even if it's artificial yeah uh, I think that there's some interesting implications into how they're handling that narrative something that I know we did mention and I specifically brought it up so pat on the back for yeah, myself go ahead. Yeah. Uh, go. <laughs> on the on the episode that we did which was in uh, I think late April early May of mm-hmm. uh, 2015 That's a while ago yeah something something we definitely did talk about was the interestingness of uh 
Is that a word? Interestingness? I don't yeah. think so. Go, okay. Let's, Go for it. Let's the, make it one. The the the, <laughs> the interesting part of Oscar Isaac is that he's made multiple different C, um, AIs, and they've all been females, yes. and he's probably... And they've all turned on him. Well, and they, they all have a very similar physique, even if they have yeah. different ethnicities. They're yeah. all thin and in shape. He and, has a very favorite type of salad dressing, man. Well, that is very much true, and it has yeah. like, that great joke in the middle of the film. But uh, it, it's it's interesting that he's always creating females and and not really knowing what his purpose is of that. Of oh, I'm trying to create an AI, but at the same time, but can he, you fuck it? What, what what is he really trying to? Create? Well, and that's the thing, and that's where his ultimate blind spot comes into play is that he doesn't realize like where he does. I wouldn't say go wrong, but. Uh, he thinks he has all the variables completely, you know, uh, perfectly tuned and mm. like fair, so to speak. And then he can never zone in on on his infallibility of like his own creation or and, his infatuation with yeah. trying to replicate the the female form constantly yeah. over and over and over again, and why it keeps on rejecting him. Um, yeah, it was. I I'm, I love this film. I I think that it wasn't the film. It didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to be, and I don't think that it necessarily blew the hinges off of uh, like artificial intelligence films. But really, it just kind of like it showed that there's still some life in it. Yeah, it, it's still it's still very much played with the status quo of an artificial intelligence film, and really just like hit on all cylinders. Like I took um, one of my 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 friend's uh, sister Natalie because she was very much infatuated with the idea, and she was talking excitedly about about it like afterwards and I'm glad that she was able to experience that film because it's a great movie. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think it gets too even though they the the characters have repeated conversations about artificial intelligence. It never once feels like an artificial intelligence movie, no. so to speak, like it's at first and foremost just a meditation I think on like I guess what it means to be human, which is obviously a huge thing about artificial intelligent like genre films, mm. but this feels way more like a Frankenstein movie than it does like than it does like the recent stream of artificial intelligence like uh, media. Yeah, going back to um, something that I mentioned in the original like Ex Machina episode, which I had totally forgotten about, and I was amazed that I even made this point. And I was just like, "Oh my god, who is this guy?" That Go was a really good sad. point. Um, yeah, was the the parallels to uh, William Shakespeare's The Tempest? Where I was just like, "Holy shit, that's really on point." It's like Oscar, I, no, I'm <laughs> way to go. Tucson. I'm not trying. I'm yeah, not, I'm like, fuck good, yeah, I'm good job, amazing. Tucson. Yeah, way to go, Tucson. <laughs> yeah, good job, past Tucson. And I was just like, Oscar <laughs> Isaac really is Prospero, and and uh, uh, Ava is is his daughter in a way. And I was just like, damn. I was like, okay, so yeah. I liked it. He's also Caliban. I was like, that's really fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, that is. My number three, Ex Machina, by director Alex Garland. Also, I want to, like, pipe up and talk about something about Alex Garland. Okay. I am so looking forward to his next film, which is an adaptation of Jeff Vandermeer's uh, Southern Reach trilogy, Annihilation. And it's going to be an all-female cast, and I cannot wait. It's going to be great. Hmm. That'll be good, because I never once thought Ex Machina was misogynistic or anything like that. But it is so male, uh, I would say... I don't know what I Male gazy? Yeah, that I, I'm, I'm glad and hopefully that this next film will like be kind of like the opposite reaction to something like that. It's going to have Tessa and Thompson she, and Natalie Portman. and Yeah, because I mean there, there's a scene when, uh, when uh, what is it, Caleb, that's his name, uh, going through like the his, his 
Nathan's bedroom and mm-hmm. you know just like certain scenes like that felt like a little excessive uh, in in the even though I kind I totally get it because it's very creepy to see and it's kind of like With the showing the extent of like uh, Nathan's uh, perversion like, yeah uh, so it's not so much that I didn't think it was at all. Uh, you know, bad or anything like that. But I, I'm just glad to see that his next film is like a, a departure from, I think, a story like this, which is very uh, testosterone-fueled, I mm-hmm. think. Hmm. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Looking forward to it. As I, I mentioned before when we talked about this um, this film, I I think bigger things are to come probably for Alex Garland down the road. I think so. I feel I like he could, could very easily it. have a Ryan Johnson arc in his future if he, he works the right way. Let's, he, he wrote um, 28 Days Later and he wrote Sunshine, so he's well... He also worked on Dread, I think, right? Yeah, he, mm. he almost pretty much like half I like, directed I was gonna Dread. Say, I feel like that was from what I heard from a production. Like, he's well deserved his yeah, due. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's my number three. Good guy. Right on. Yeah. We love you, Alex. Thank you very much. Oh, no. you thought I was, yeah, we, I was talking about oh, you. Oh, you were talking about him. No, oh. no, no. We're talking about you, buddy. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> talking about myself now. Yeah, ah, yeah. Talking, ah, ah, gotcha. Oh, man. This we son, have fun here. This son of a bitch. <laughs> so moving on to my number three, it is Pete Doctor's directed Inside Out. Mm. Um, I forgot the director's name, so at first I'm like, where are we going with this? Who the fuck is Pete Doctor? Who the fuck is Pete Doctor? Ah, yes. He's that tall, creepy guy who works for Pixar and happened to direct this film, and I thought this was an absolute marvelous film. We talked about it on the episode. Just This was the first film that I thought was truly a five out of five film this year, and it, it was through and through everything I wanted it to be, and sort of a a throwback to what I felt like a lot of my childhood is, is having this feeling that, you know, how do you deal with your emotions? How do you put them in different places? Well, in that, in that things are talking about the toy story effect. What's that? Like the idea that the things when you're not looking at them or observing them are working in a way that are like conscious of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. How do you conceptualize the things that are going around? around? There are, there are characters that are controlling things in your your brain. Like Wreck-It Ralph, like that the video games are, that there are small people or whatever you want to call them Mm -hmm. that are in, I felt like in my childhood, that was something that was, I actually thought was actually true because I thought, oh, well there's someone who does this and operates this part of your and tells your body to do this and whatever. And yeah. I, I thought that was... Well, about last year, you, you got over it. And... <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> I know, this fucking guy. Just every time. With uh. <laughs> but I, I thought Inside Out just really perfectly showed all of these emotions. And even though it characterized them a little much at some points, it, it is, at, at a point, a children's film. It, it, that's what it is. Yeah. A PG-rated film that is made for children, but... More than anything, I feel like this film was definitely made for adults and young adults and older adults. And, and uh, I think almost anybody could watch this film and really enjoy it because I think it is a marvelously made film. And it it really just kept my attention all the whole way through and had honestly such a – it did such a good job of actually having every emotion that was mentioned in the film – I felt like you f- I felt that emotion while I was watching the film, whether it be sadness or or joy or or anger or anything like that. I mm-hmm. felt like this film really practiced what it preached throughout the entire film, and I, it just did it in such a great way that I I just loved it, and I 
this film could easily have been my number one this year. It just mm. ended up because of my preference being number three, but it yeah. was a fantastic film that I think we all pretty much enjoyed. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think I think that like so many other good things that have come out this year, it's kind of inspired this almost this debate of two extremes of whether or not it's the greatest thing ever or if it's just like a, a crime against humanity from some people. Basically, basically really? based on yeah, based on like the the admittedly reductionist like depiction of like these five aspects of of the emotional like 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 spectrum. And I know you're shaking your head at that, Al- yeah. like, Nick, but I but I agree with you right. because like it's a children's film and it's trying it's engaging with emotions on the level of a child. And it's like, well, it's not dealing with like the different. It's like it, it by the end of the film, it shows that you can be both happy and sad. It shows that you can be both scared and brave. Like, well, not only that, but I mean, it, the fact that, that this film even got made. I don't see adult movies like dealing with inner emotions. I, I, I'm not saying adult mm-hmm. movies don't have inner emotions or anything like that, but like, it, this is a movie that's starting a conversation. I don't think it's like necessarily um, trying to be the last word. Right. I, it, I haven't seen anything quite like it, and that's why I feel like to call it reductionist is, is, is reduction in, in and of itself. Because because of what it's doing that no other film, uh, especially a film aimed at children, I mean, that's the thing, uh, is even attempting to do. Nick, I'm sorry, but if it's not immaculate and perfect, then it's problematic, and we must debate it. Well, I agree. But I feel like kids <laughs> pick up on almost everything that is in this film. At least that's what I've heard from other people who have yeah. had children that have gone to see the film. But they've they've been sad when certain things have happened, like with, with the character Bing Bong. <laughs> Bing Bong, Bing Bong. He yeah. also is at the center of one of my... One of my favorite comedic scenes in cinema this past year, where they're on the train and they knock over the boxes, and it's like, <laughs> "Oh, you got you got your facts mixed with my opinions. Oh, it's okay. We'll just put him in the boxes or whatever. You can't tell the difference." <laughs> like, oh my god. Well, that's the other thing. There were so many great moments, and they were like shockingly obscure references, like the reference to Chinatown in this film yeah. that was really unnecessary. Forget it, Jack. It's Cloud Town. I was like, damn. But that that was just the little things like that that were just awesome that you were able to see them as a film and it was just so funny and so well done. Mm -hmm. For sure. I just am so happy and I I think a credit to this film, this is a total opposite of last year where uh, a lot of people were disappointed that the Lego film was not nominated for Best Animated Film at the Oscars and Big Hero 6 ended up winning when How I Train Your How to, How to Train Your Dragon Part mm-hmm. 2 How I the, Train Your Dragon <laughs> was the favorite and then Big Hero 6 ended up winning and I haven't seen the How to Train Your Dragon 2 but I I heard it's film. really good and yeah. I know Big Hero 6 is really good and I know the Lego movie was really good too but I I think it's interesting that I looked uh, early on as someone wrote their Oscar predictions uh, and I don't remember who it was, but they, they had a front runner and then a who was the second person who they thought was the, the person who could uh, unseat whoever it was. And for the best animated film category, they for the who could possibly step up and win, they're like, it's just not going to happen. Like this Yeah, is- although I feel like that's also because Pixar never loses, and that's mm-hmm. kind of a other systemic problem uh the academy yeah I and i'm see. not saying that inside out should lose or anything yeah. like that but it does somehow dilute the power of it winning in yeah. my opinion and i i feel like the uh the film um, that you brought up earlier nick uh anomalisa right and yeah. i i haven't seen it but i'm sure that is definitely deserving you know, of winning best anime but at the same time i feel so, like so how do you compare those two yeah and that's the other thing it's like i i, I really obviously i like one more than the other mm-hmm. and i like anomaly some more than i liked inside out but i i don't know that like th- there's no way to bridge the gap between them quality wise because that would 
make them fundamentally different movies yeah. uh, as far as ones directed at kids. <laughs> Anomalisa is a movie that has a stop motion animated puppet sex scene that's not actually funny. Like it, it like is, Team it, America World Police? Right, it's not like that where it's actually tender and awkward hmm. and very, very... Uh, uh, elongated, and you're, yeah. you're just you're, you're stuck in that moment while it's happening. Uh, the same way that uh, the same way that these characters are, which is why that moment works. But how do you compare that to uh, Bing Bong? Bing Bong? Bing Bong? Bing Bong? Bing Bong? I feel like Inside Out was just it was just a success on so many levels for that sure. I'm, I'm glad to see, and I'm was glad to see that he uh, got a nomination for um, best uh, best. Uh, original screenplay right oh it probably i, I, I didn't so. really look at the academy <laughs> nominations after i pretty much saw the the reactions to the okay. academy nominations mm-hmm. yeah yeah so but I, yeah. I i'm a huge fan of inside out and i uh i'm glad to see that uh so many people liked it just as much as i did and that was my number three pete doctor's inside out up to the the big two. Oh I'm, boy! I'm very interested to see what Nick ended up going with with his number <laughs> one. So let's uh, find out. Is uh, he'll have his number two first? So my, I would say my my one two, my little combo of Mr. these one, of two. these next two films, and I'm only going to talk about number two, but mm-hmm. just want to preface this next stretch of films and say that if we had this episode tomorrow. I could just reverse them, and so if we had it the next day, I could reverse them again, and so on and so forth, because I probably enjoy them both equally for the complete opposite reasons. I think they could not be more diametrically opposed. So having said that, my number two, and we'll complete the puzzle later, <laughs> my number two, and let me just make sure, because I even have to look at, see what my last, uh, here we go, okay, that's what I thought, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> My number two is The Hateful Eight uh, by Quentin Tarantino. Um, And this is a movie that only... I've seen it three times now uh, in the theater. uh, Twice the Roadshow version, once digital. Gotta catch up, man. Gotta catch up with Django. I'm planning to go see it a fourth time uh, in digital. And this is a movie that I think might rival Tarantino's best movies. Uh, It's the more I think about it, the more I think he's finally nailed it, so to speak. And um, I think I prefer Jackie Brown slightly more because that movie's just got so much emotional heft to it that none of his other movies have. Uh, But the more I think about it, the more I, like, it, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I like Django Unchained less, which was my previous second favorite Tarantino movie, but this is a movie that I, I, I don't want to call it brave or courageous, but he finally did, I would say, whisk away the safety net of a comfortable portrayal of race relations. This is a movie that sets this audience in a room and does not allow them to escape it at any time. I can call you the N-word because we're friends. Yeah. yeah. It, gets, <laughs> and, it gets rid of that. Yeah. Exactly. And Or or you're just a slave. Or, like, it's obvious I would call it, like, a white Academy voters uh, comfortable uh, situations where we, mm-hmm. like, praise black performances. Like, or, see, this is, just, this is just systematic racism. This yeah. isn't, like, like, real life, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Exactly. And part of – and I'm going to kind of go off on a little tangent here, so uh, forgive me. <laughs> but um, I saw another movie this year uh, for the very first time in the theaters, but it's a classic movie. And I, I – once I realized the similarities between these two movies, that's kind of what unlocked the key of me liking The Hateful Eight even more than I did the first time. Okay. This movie completely reminds me of My Fair Lady starring Audrey Hepburn. So mm. hold on here. Uh, and He's about I'm, to go on his Quentin Tarantino uh, Top Gun-like extrapolation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly like that. 
Okay, and to explain, uh, besides the fact that they're both three-hour movies that have intermission, and they were both roadshow movies, I mean, My Fair Lady was one of the original roadshow movies and whatnot, um, I think this movie does for uh, racism and misogyny, probably, that My Fair Lady did for misogyny as well. That My Fair Lady is a movie that was released in the 60s that takes place in, like, the early... Uh, 20th century, uh, and it portrays a character that is so <laughs> irredeemable in his classism and his uh, misogyny that a lot of people watch that movie and mistake the movie itself for being misogynistic uh, because they can't stand that basically its main character is... How the fuck does this guy get screen time, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think in the same way that uh, Tarantino is uh, essentially releasing a movie today... Uh, that takes place uh, like two, what is it, like maybe a hundred years ago uh, or so. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think the same way that he's doing uh, that, both movies illuminate how little progress we made in in both respects. And uh, so that's the end of that comparison. It's very random, I know, but I also could not stop thinking about it, and probably because of a superficial roadshow comparison and whatnot. But anyway, uh, but I've, I've seen countless conversations surround this movie of The Hateful Eight, uh, around whether he's being racist, or I saw him a piece on RogerReaper dot com that uh, I forgot who it was written by, but um, the title was like "I'm over this form, this form of like hipster misogyny," uh, and it completely condemns the hateful eight and how it's not cool to hit women, and and it's basically it's a point of view that I don't begrudge anybody for. You understand it? Like... I understand it. I, I I disagree with it, and I also hate the idea of people calling out other people like the, the 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 phrase hipster in your title kind of is already pointing and calling out shots at people that are defending the movie it's sort of a litmus test like just going off that that one word not yeah. to go off on an entire tangent no, but it's like it's sort of a litmus test of how we project like what kind of instances actually like are attached to that amorphous title? Yeah. Well, it also is characterizing a whole group of people who happen to feel that and saying, "Well, because they feel that way, they're hipster." Right? What and if I that they're somehow like less genuine, yeah. so to speak? And that's so. I, I actually I like the piece itself, even if I disagree with, I would say almost all of it. Uh, the title is a little something, <laughs> um, but this is a movie for me that is. I, I want to say. <laughs> In the same way that this movie itself takes place when it does, you know, some years after the Civil War, uh, and, and this half of this movie is, is is a lot of white people and one black person uh, having, uh, or I was still, still having the Civil War discussion in their own, you know, living room, uh, the same way that, like, you know, we're however many, you know, 50-something years removed from segregation. Having and the discussion of race relations. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. how the, that's a thing that is never going to go away if we keep resolving it the same way we always do, which is violence. Yeah. Uh, and that's why this movie just completely, the more I think about it, the more it blows me away. But then putting all the societal implications uh, uh, aside, I just think this movie, it's just, it's just impeccably made. I mean, the direction, the cinematography, I'm not going to go through all the little things, but even down to the uh, the audiovisual cues, I mean, yes, using uh, Ennio Morricone's score, uh, leftover score, so to speak. From the thing. From yeah. a thing is a great little in-cinema joke, but let's talk about really quick the, um, the inclusion of... Uh, 
the white stripes apple blossom when Daisy Duke's in the stagecoach and she's just been hit and she licks her lips and it's like at that point you don't really know all these characters yet but the fact that he included a song about a f- that's sung by a famous brother-sister duo about how the male singer is going to come save his little apple blossom you know it's just I feel like that's already hinting at how there is maybe a brother-sister dynamic hidden under the floorboards of this narrative and uh, and how just everything like that is just in service of of this grand story. Um, and I also just said really quickly bring up another song, but the, the, the ending song, I, I think it's crazy that people are still having debates about the final scene, even not crazy. Cause I understand, uh, mm. but the, the hanging of Daisy Domergue and whether it's just, or Domingue. <laughs> yes. And whether it's just or not, um, when I feel like the final statement from Tarantino is that it's not, because if you listen to the lyrics of Roy Orbison's clothing song, which starts before the credits. So that's embedded into the actual film. It's not like it's just an afterthought. But it's something that's supposed to make its way into the thread of this narrative is uh, some of the lyrics in that song are even if only one person comes home, he was still some mother's son. And, you know, the idea that this is as long as we continue down this road of violence, we're we're never going to get past this and we need to approach it another way. Uh, And yet it's still distinctly nasty, uh, violent. uh, So I can understand why people are uncomfortable with it. It has a very. I would say cynical message in the sense that you know the progress of this will only lead to the setback of something else. Uh, but I don't think Tarantino himself is a cynicist, and that's why I still love his films. I think he wishes this was a better place, but he's going to depict it as it is. Uh, and I just, I the more I think about it, the more I love it. So, like, y- you ask me tomorrow, it'll be my number one. But huh. as of right now, um, that's my number two. Well, or, yeah. I feel like that ending, ending kind of act or scene or whatever you want to call it, which I believe is the sixth part, or is it? The yes, fifth? the sixth chapter. Okay, yep. the final chapter of the film is the the one in question for me, the one that I I feel like I most not that I disliked, but the one that I was kind of not so sure about the first time yeah. seeing it. And even though it's still, I think my least favorite of all of the chapters, I've, I've definitely come on board with sort of the finale of it and. And thinking about it more than just taking it at face value, like you do, because the first time you see it, you, that's all you really can do when you walk out of the theater. But I feel like it's it's so interesting, and, and it works both when you're watching it for kind of comic purposes. When she cuts off, uh, she cuts <laughs> off his, Russell's cuts hand, off uh, John Ruth's arm yeah. and kind of whips it across the room. But you see in that final scene when she's hanging there, he's she still has his arm. Yes handcuffed to her mm. so it, it's, the camera pans down to that instead of her right so you're you're seeing and it's very much brought up too it, it's even discussed by the two characters of chris mannix and um why am i forgetting samuel jackson marquise warren marquise warren that we're doing this this way because this is what he would have wanted yes frontier justice but yeah. is right. it though yeah. yeah well yeah but it but it, that's the question and well, it's not so much is it fr- it is frontier justice, yeah. but whether that's still justice is the question. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's it's and we have talked about it on the episode. It's right. really not. It's it's really just them killing this woman because they hate her because they think she's a crazy bitch. Yeah, and that yeah. that's really just boils down to how they feel and how about we can it. hide behind that language to justify our own beliefs. And um, yeah. Yeah, it's and it's it's right on point. And um, two yeah. other little details that I never mentioned on the episode reviews, so I'll mention now before I pass it on. Um, it's a I, the more I think about it, the more I love Bruce Dern's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I loved it the first time, but the implications of how he represents the older generation, who has essentially been told, if as long as you don't talk about. 
about our history. We'll give you a pass for the shit that you did. Like nothing more sums up uh, like our forefathers and like how they just pretended that they didn't do it. Or and, colorblind society. Yes, uh, that. And I also love, I don't think, and I don't really, I didn't catch it the first time we're through, but like how nasty of a joke uh that final scene is when um, Chris Mannix is reading the, the, the Lincoln letter and his, which another character has said before, but his line about when he says, Oh, Mary Todd's calling. And he looks up and he goes, that's a nice touch as if the, he added a woman to give it a false sense of a security, mm. you know, like that only in my opinion further supports this, uh, yeah, this self referential to the, even the yeah, movie itself, this palpable yeah. sense of misogyny that I don't think, characterizes tarantino himself or the script itself it's just it's 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 bringing it up so that way we can react to it and i think that that's a very important thing to do in filmmaking Mm. and not only did he do that but he made it way more fucking entertaining than it should be so that's why the the hateful eight is my number two yes and your bob gets his fucking head blown off and it's awesome (laughs) fucking chicken won't even be worth a peso even though it's uh it didn't make my top six i think that it has some of my favorite shots like when obi is like exiting like to to dump down the the guns into the shitter like i think that was like one of my favorites and obviously the opening tile sequence uh like with the gnarly crucifix and the 70 millimeter, that's still... Yeah, that's just Tarantino. That's still right near my heart right just, there. Oh right in the pocket, yeah. yeah. I think comparing this in terms of cinematography-wise to his other films uh, that he's done recently, Robert Richardson, I think, outdid himself for this film. Oh, and, my God, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we, we've said it before in the sense that, like, yeah, he shot a 70 millimeter film in one location, and yet you wouldn't really be able to tell, not, not literally, but just how many great shots there are in this one film out of the same exact location. And there's one shot of uh, Michael Madsen's character when you can see the dawn, uh, not the dawn, the dusk. Wait, the dawn or dusk? Which one is it? The, the dawn or the dusk? Probably dusk. Dusk, yes. Yeah. Or, yeah, the dusk breaking in the background, and I think it's the barn or the stable is also in the whatever. Like that shot of him and the window, uh, whatever, mm-hmm. which, yes, shows the passing of time, but does it in such a beautiful way that I'd like watch another hour of it. Uh, it's just it's just great. Um, yeah, it's just, I love it. Right on. You love the Hateful Eight. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on to Susan, his number two. All right, my number two. I had not seen this film until recently. It kind of snuck up on me. And for some reason, I just decided on a whim to just rent it. And this film like snuck up behind me and just wrapped its arms around my heart and just would not let go. Oh, fantastic uh, four. <laughs> don't ever speak that name to me again. Boil my number one. Don't geez. ever, don't ever do that. Um, my number two is Kumiko, uh, the treasure hunter by director David Zellner. Yep. Okay. It's the Zelda Brothers. The Zellner Brothers. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in the same way that the yeah. Conan Brothers are yeah. in that way. And that's also another reference that I have to yeah. continue to make about this <laughs> because, like, I I absolutely fell in love with this film as, as I was watching it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was, like, on an aesthetic level, it was just what I was looking for. Like, the color grading is so sharp and so yeah. strong. Oh, my God. Um, it, I think it knows how to meaningfully, like, linger on a on a shot in order to, like <laughs> – milk it for all of its dramatic and even comedic like like potential i think that there's great idiosyncratic like like uh movements on part of all the characters i think there's so many memorable lines in it i think the practical like costume effects are 
are incredible and more than anything like there's so many things that I, that I could say about this you should definitely look at my my letterbox review if you want me to hear more about it um i think that this film is so indebted not only to um the Coen brothers aesthetic from Fargo, because obviously Fargo is the, the, the MacGuffin of this entire film. I think that it is so much a product of the resurgent or the new wave aesthetic of VHS degradation, which is something that I am very much personally fascinated by because I feel like that's a way that in this like modern age of, of 2015, that people sometimes like take a note to try to degrade their own, um, their own media in order to in, infuse it with a kind of physicality that has kind of like been eschewed from from the immaterial like nature of digital filming right and i feel like it's it's not only just in the nature of like a a, a fargo vhs tape being like the call to adventure for kumiko as, as a treasure hunter yeah. but also and i think this is is so smart and so perfect like when you're watching the film and, you, and you're going through the uh the the opening title sequences just another quick aside this film is awesome in that it is is almost buffered by this mythic sense of ambiguity on both ends and i and i think that's incredible. whether it's like it's like whether she's crazy or how, whether she... how did it start and how did right. it end that's yeah. that's what that's what i'm talking yeah. about like when you're paying attention to the opening title credits and it's panning down to like this beach that kumiko is uh is is walking across you see a uh, a visual fragment for a second and you think like what the fuck did something like happen to my to my rental and you actually go back and you realize like no that's a deliberate touch and the reason why that's there is that it's very much emulating the very physical object of the fargo vhs tape in itself in that fargo that <laughs> That tape is what spawned the legend of Kumiko, the treasure hunter. So what happens when somebody happens upon a VHS or Blu-ray copy of Kumiko, the treasure hunter, and that itself spawns its own legend? It's so fucking awesome. You know oh it's based on a true story, right? I know it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I, I looked it up. I think I that, know. I, I believe that the, the stories are very different, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's inspired by a real person who – Went to look for the Fargo briefcase. <laughs> Even that is is kind of like left up to interpretation because it might have been that she was uh, distraught over a, a past lover or something like that. I think that uh, Rinko uh, Kikuchi, who you may know from a film like Pacific Rim, like I thought that she she gave one hell of a performance. It was so heartfelt. It was so painful. It was so it was so involved. I loved it. It was it was great. I, for me, the bunny was the MVP. It's, Come on, Bunzo, let's go. The uh, uh, I actually think the bunny is one of the most important things in the movie because yeah. when he appears and when he doesn't is actually kind of a sign of you know what's possibly real and what's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Um, I, I I saw this as well. I was a fan of it, mm-hmm. and um, I got to say that I, I kind of want to rewatch it because it wasn't quite what I was expecting. And yeah. I liked what I saw, but I um, it kept me at an arm's length at first, and I only started to warm up to it by the time it was over, which means I you know got to go back and rewatch it. Mm-hmm. But I will agree with just about everything you said as far as like the, the cinematography is gorgeous in this weird like. I don't want to say desaturated way, but like what you were talking about, like yeah. color grading, like mm-hmm. uh, it it doesn't try to force colors so much as it it, it just looks like a tapestry almost. Like it's it's uh, it's just like uh, Kumiko's uh, like poncho, her makeshift poncho. Yeah, yeah, yeah that and. Uh, the other thing I kept thinking was how, like, uh, her red sweatshirt, her mm-hmm. red hoodie, whatever, was, like, the equivalent of, like, uh, uh, what's his name, Ryan Gosling's uh, scorpion sweater or coat in Drive, where, like, I, just, like, every time I saw it, it just felt like a character in and of itself, mm-hmm. because it was, like, that's Kamiko, and 
there's just something about it. She looked like a superhero, so to speak, because uh, you know you just couldn't separate the two. You know, yeah. Uh, but absolutely. I was I was a big fan, and I also applauded as uh, I would say its resistance to make the midwestern section like overly comical. Because yeah. what's actually kind of great is that they're they're pretty friendly and not just in that it's treated typical yeah, yeah not just the typical like. Midwestern, like, oh, they're two nice folks or something like that, but, like, this weird, like, especially the cop who's kind of, like, battling between, like, okay, so what's more helpful, like, helping her feed this delusion? Or, or... telling her the truth. Right. Yeah. So I, I was, I definitely liked a lot of it. It was good. Yeah. The, uh, the, the shots of, like, contemporary Japan and Minnesota just, like, juxtaposed with one another, it just absolutely worked so well on different levels because when you have, like, this urban congestion that's kind of, like, um, itself juxtaposed with like this cultivated rural aesthetic. It's like it, like Japan. Japan is so fucking p- picturesque. It's almost not fair to like say it's like oh man that one scene set in Japan was so cool, but Minnesota itself is is treated as almost a mythic yeah a, a, a mythic place yeah yeah when you compare like her and her office where every office girl is wearing the same exact outfit mm-hmm. uh to you know her in in uh in the midwest and you know, she's like every single character is in something completely different as far as like what they're wearing and whatnot and they just look completely different there's i, I think there's definitely some like uncanny valley going on there as far as like what they were trying to push mm-hmm. um I, I think my favorite stretch though is in that movie is the uh when she gets off the plane and she gets kind of like uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, she gets taken aside by the two like missionary Who people. Who the fuck are these people? Like, oh yeah. my god! And like at first, like all they're talking are very broad. Seat. Like they're just like, yeah, well, we're here to help you, and that's why we we're, we were not affiliated with the airport, but we we just want to whatever. And it's just so slowly does he start to pepper in language that's like, you know, and I was lost once, and uh, that I found the light, <laughs> and it starts going down that. You're avenue. Jehovah's Witness, aren't you? <laughs> and I also love how he starts like taking pot shots at other. He's like, I I, I know that there uh, there are others around here who will do the same thing. We're I, I know there's a few Methodists out there, and, and like it just starts getting more and more specific, mm-hmm. and she just completely lost in translation. Yeah, and, which is great because that's also another I go joke to Fargo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and how like their message is never going to be received by you know the people that they're targeting. It's yeah, it's just yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, definitely. So that is my number two, uh, Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter. Go see it. Yeah, right on. So, uh, kind of like Nick, my uh, top two films are kind of close, as I feel that they both could have easily been number one. Inside Out could have been, too, as I really enjoyed that film very much and was right in that conversation for me. Uh, but this film, I feel like I, I enjoyed my number one just a little bit more in terms of how much enjoyment I got out of it. So, I, I left that at number one and uh, had this film as my number two which we just talked about last week, which is Alejandro Gonzalez and Arutu's The Revenant, ah. which I thought was an absolutely fantastic film, which you guys weren't that huge of fans of. And that's okay. Yes, it is. Yes. And you know what? I feel like this is a very um, weird film like that because I feel like there are a lot of people who absolutely love this film, and there are quite a bit of people who, who really don't care for it. And I think that's going to be what Inarutu is always going to be because there is a whole legion of people who did not like Birdman and that's totally fine too because I could see why you wouldn't like it. And I guess for me, I would say I'm a fan of his because I've given his last two films each a perfect five out of five rating. So I I have to say I'm a fan of what he does as his work, but I, 
I think it's the whole package here is what makes me like this film so much is, is I, I really like the acting. I, he, I, I really, really liked what Leonardo DiCaprio was doing as Hugh Glass. Even uh, if some people have, have given him shit for the, the breathing constantly. And that's a big part of the film. I'm, I'm okay with that because I, I, I like the journey of what, what he's going through with this film. And, Tom Hardy, I feel like, is giving a a terrific performance here. He had a well deserved Oscar nomination uh, as a supporting actor, and I think he's he's well deserved of of getting. This is my favorite part of the movie yeah. for me. And I mean, I, that's saying a lot, but you fucking. Hate I was just saying, I'm not even like a Tom Hardy like <laughs> fan, so to speak. But oh fuck, he's he's, he's putting on a, a really solid performance here, and even though I don't think he should win, I think him getting nominated for an Oscar is is a great thing because I think he's. He's doing a great job in being a supporting character in this film. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everybody else who's playing in this film is is doing their job of what they need to do. But supporting the main kind of story and, and everything that happens with it, whether it be the surrealness of some of the scenes and the, the almost like dream vision sequences to the absolutely fantastic cinematography that's happening from Emmanuel Lubezki here. Uh, just have a all-around fabulous film that... I enjoyed watching both times, and it really says something for a two-hour and 40-minute film that I sat through and genuinely was just loving both times that I sat and watched it. And there are just also, at the same time, three standout scenes in this film that are are just almost, not, I wouldn't say surprising, but they were done so well that I... I just almost can't believe how perfectly they ended up working out and the finale being my favorite out of them, which is the, the fight scene between Hugh Glass and John Fitzgerald, which is just so raw and, and it just feels so real for, for some reason, even though obviously they have their lines of dialogue in there. It just feels like how a, a hand-to-hand axe and knife fight would go. Out That's how it would go. Out of the middle of the snow of guys just like hugging and stabbing and bleeding and just the rawness of, of what actual like real life was especially back in the just, 1820s just hug and bleed it out man yeah i think that fight is when for me the one moment in the movie where like that struggle between man versus wild became personal uh you know and that's and i that's why i actually did like that fight even if i wasn't the biggest fan of the movie mm-hmm. uh, but I, I yeah i think that fight is both besides the fact that it's like expertly played it's just so well choreographed that it's it actually gets into into that mindset of like that this is the worst time to be alive <laughs> yeah um you mentioned uh alex uh birdman so i wanted to ask you the question for viewers who don't who didn't enjoy birdman do you think that they would come to this film and enjoy it or do you feel like it would be in a route to just like digging himself deeper into this aesthetic hole. I feel like people who didn't like Birdman could like this film because yeah. I feel like this is a very much different film than what Birdman is. Mm. I still think Inarutu, even though I've I've had kind of a... I don't want to say... Hot and cold. Well, I, not a hot and cold, but I, I'm going to mention another director because I, I think he has a very pretentious sort of uh, playing up thing. And there are some people that don't mind that at all. Obviously, I don't. I enjoy both these films. Uh, another filmmaker who very much has that vibe about him is someone like Terrence Malick, yeah. who's yeah. made a lot of fabulous Well, he doesn't films. really speak, though. That's I'm just saying as far as, like, in your read to, and I'm not trying to debate the merits of The Revenant or anything like that, but, like, he, in interviews, can't stop saying things like, this film should be viewed in a temple, or... Uh, oh, well, that's stupid. That's what I mean as far as, like, the pretension. I'm not saying Terrence Malick I'm, movies I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking about just on a watching, viewing of the film level. Right. I feel like that's... That's a, another example of of someone who has 
right. a film that seems like it's trying to seem more important than it really yeah. is. Which I think Naruto's films have done, both Birdman and The Revenant do do. But at the same time, this is a very different film than what Birdman is, where that film... Yeah. Uh, had a lot involved with what the script was. A lot of timing involved in that film was very important because it is mirroring like a, a stage play. Uh, and this is a much slower uh, and, and sort of struggleish film. Uh, so I, I think there are people who can enjoy this, but I, I don't think it, it... It doesn't surprise me at all that there are people who really love this film, just like there are people who really love Birdman, and people who really hate it, just like they really hated Birdman. It, yeah. it makes sense to me because... Seems to be a very like endearing is the, is the, is the word like he's 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 just got this weird enrapturing directional st- yeah I guess this weird directional style that will either people will gravitate towards or gravitate away from right and I think the chief difference between the two films as far as what will set somebody off or it won't is the idea that this is the Revenant is completely lacking in that meta textual labor that uh, that Birdman because when you make a movie about a director whining about critics and whatnot, uh, you're only asking to be <laughs> to be hated, and I didn't hate it. I love that movie. But whereas The Revenant never once tries to engage with art on that level. It tries it on other levels and whatnot and has other things to offer. But I think it's because it's almost like Birdman was asking to like be like taken apart because of what was clearly a stand-in for somebody like Inuritu. Uh, that's why I would think... Birdman got his ire. I think the Revenant would, like you're saying, would get if it is hated, which some people do, uh, for completely different reasons. So that's why yeah. you should definitely see both. Yeah, I I would say so. Yeah. Obviously, since I gave both of them a perfect rating, I think anyone should go see them. But I, I feel like the importance of of this film in terms of seeing that sort of struggle is is that it makes it feel real to me. Like. If if you make this film forty five minutes shorter, which a lot of people have brought up as the, as their opinion, I think it would cheapen sort of the journey from Left for Dead to Returned and fighting Tom Hardy in the final scene. Like I, I feel like you can't go in forty five minutes film time from laying in a grave to fighting against somebody and winning pretty much like it seems to make sense of why this film is so long and why the journey is so important and i i guess that's why i'm able to to gravitate towards this film and really enjoy it so much because every aspect of it whether it be the narrative the characters the cinematography even like production design and and like makeup and costume design like i feel like I can feel how how cold these characters are. Like you see their frozen beards and their scarred faces and their just just rough lives that these people lived, and it just feels so real to me. And I I just was all the way on board with it. And even though some of the the parts of it weren't my favorite, like Leo looking into the camera and some of the out of body experiences, I wasn't. I won't say it's my favorite thing about the film, but still overall, this is a fabulous film that. I would recommend to anybody to at least watch once. And I think everybody will have an opinion on it. So yeah, that's the Revenant, which was my number two of the year. And now we go to the top spot for everybody as they uh, will have to uh, let known what their number one was of the year. So uh, let's do it. Our favorite films of 2015 stand and be counted. (laughs) 
Well, here we are, and I will admit, when 2015 started, I never would have imagined that this would be my number one film. Uh, and to reiterate and connect back to what I was saying, if The Hateful Eight showed us a world that we, uh, we used to live in and haven't quite escaped, my number one movie, Magic Mike XXL, <laughs> shows us a world that I think we should aspire to. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a utopia, uh, so to speak, and... I just don't think I've seen a movie all year that just pushed every single one of my buttons. Uh, <laughs> this is a movie that uh, completely throws out the pretension of the first one and actually cashes in on the check that the first one wrote uh, of just being entertaining. Uh, this is a movie that s- centers around a group of male entertainers, not strippers. Uh, it's very important. It is. And... And this, I think I wrote a little review on Letterboxd, and I basically, to paraphrase my own words, I basically said how, like, this is a blockbuster through and through in the sense that you just have to substitute dancing scenes for action scenes and throw away the somehow, usually not very well handled, like, misogyny Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with, like, action, a, a script that not only pays attention to women, but values them as their own individuals and how their needs are separate than what men want and what men need. And like, you know, Donald Glover's character uh, is saying in the car in one point, and he's like, all we have to do is ask them what they want. And, you know, like, how cool is that? It's like, and so I think some people might, A, just hate this movie because they'll think it has no plot, which it doesn't. And I don't think that's a bad thing because these set pieces work on in and of themselves. Uh, and uh, B might look at scenes like that and think that it's a little too glib about uh, the reality of the world that we live in. But I don't give a fuck because I, I want to live in this reality. It advocates um, body body positivity and yes. sex positivity, and yes. I think that's actually a very important message in in 2015. I was going to say, like, what, what was the last too. film uh, that I at least did it? I, I can't think of a recent film that at least was this concerned with and that's the thing it never feels like it is concerned with it it just presents it as a fact instead of trying to debate the merits of whether it should be this way or not mm-hmm. um, the the scene in which they, they, they find the, the male entertainers find themselves at the uh, the estate of Andy McDowell's character is probably that's the standout scene of the film I think well yeah. it's one of them it, at least I would say that's the best sequence as far as like from start to finish not just little scene because there's one scene that I may talk about in our part two uh, is a scene that I preferred even more. But <laughs> as far as a sequence uh, from, cause it's a good 25 minute, maybe stretch uh, uh, is just a great set piece of comedy pathos. I mean, you name it, it's in there. There's, there's, I love when, um, when I think one of the characters, uh, I forget which one, but uh, it might be Tito is saying where they're from and they're like Miami and he's like from Florida and, and they all look at him like, well, there's one in Ohio or, you know, like there's, there's stupid jokes like that. And yet the film also stops dead in its track to like make, uh, to give like Tarzan a, a, a little monologue about his loneliness and, and, you know, and, but it also undercuts that. Cause then even the characters are like, Jesus, my soul just died. Let's move past that. And so it, 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 <laughs> Those it like, words exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, it gives these moments actual time and effort to breathe, but it also doesn't wallow in any of its like self pity or anything like that. Yeah. I, I'll say, um, I, not that I doubted you, but I thought you were being a little, 
a little um, <laughs> over-congratulatory of this film yeah. when you first saw when we did our episode on it. I get a little passionate about certain things. And that's fine. And and I I thought that you were you know, a little out of hand because I believe this was the combination episode of Magic Mike, Double XL, and... Uh, what was the other film that we did? We was did. It, let's not remember it. Ant Man, I believe. No, I don't think so. No, it was Terminator Genesis. I was oh, saying, I think it was Terminator right. Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't so, want to say it, but right. So, and that was on the very bottom of right. My like, that's list like this your year. least favorite movie, and this one is yours. So that was a <laughs> yeah. very interesting episode. Looking back in yeah. retrospect, but yeah. um, when we went in to see this in the theater, when you took the bullet and went and saw it again for the second time, I took a real big bullet. Yeah. <laughs> it was torture. <laughs> um. I was shocked how enjoyable this film was, and I'm I'm surprised to look at how many people genuinely thought this wasn't a very good film because I feel like out of of every everything that this film brings to the table, this was very entertaining from start to finish. And I don't, yeah. just like we were talking about with Furious Seven, I don't know how you can sit and watch this film and not enjoy what you're watching on the screen. There, are, every scene and every set piece is is enjoyable, it, right. whether it be at the at the house where they are. Um, going through the the scene when they come to this realization of of this house that's having these these men dancing every night and they have almost like a revolutionary sort of time happening because yep. they are doing these things for women that you can't really do in a club atmosphere. Right. Uh, and, and it's it's almost the antithesis of the very attitude that we see portrayed in so many movies that have uh, strip club scenes uh, when it's usually the you know female strippers and male whatever. And you always see like like it just happened in The Big Short. That's the most recent example where like he's like I just want to talk because he's only there to talk to her or whatever. And he's like that's not allowed. Like that weird like strict uh like how we we put a restriction on like you know sexual arousement and whatever but when you when you flip the genders it, it just becomes a much more beautiful thing so to speak well and it, it also throughout the film it, it seems like it's interesting because even though there isn't technically a story there's almost like a, a weird coming of age thing happening with with mike in this film because he has to be pretty much tricked to come back to go on this, this grand caravan anyways. And his furniture business is sort of working, I guess he's got one employee that he can't pay for. And he's, he's making orders. So he's technically a business, but he's really still kind of struggling. And it's his relationship with Amber Heard's character, which I feel like is, is my favorite part of the film, actually, even though if I like scenes and and, then that kind of thing, more than their relationship together, it's interesting because, they're not like in love, which would be the yeah. the go to really for for characters of the film. They really are just fr- friends throughout the film who are yeah. really both trying to to find their way because they're both lost in what their life's purpose is. And it's it's funny that they they don't necessarily find it by the end of the film. Yeah. They just continue being, but they're they're in a better place and they have a better understanding of themselves going forward. After the end of the film, which ends with him basically doing a strip dance for her, and it's yeah. just fucking it's hilarious and great at the same time. Yeah, I was gonna say it's well choreographed, but it's also extremely self conscious of its ridiculousness. Uh, I can't believe how many reviews I read that said something like like who praised the movie and was like this is a great movie, but for these reasons, whatever. But I was a little taken aback by the fact that uh, Amber Heard and uh, Channing Tatum's relationship was shoehorned in there. Like, first of all, for for me at least, this was so obviously a platonic relationship, and I think that's once again another mirror up to the society. It's like we can't 
just accept that a male and a female will be friends. And it all comes down to the final line spoken in the entire movie is uh, Magic Mike to her while they're still on the stage saying, I see somebody got her smile back. Like, that was the only thing he was trying to do with that, like, dance and whatever. He was just trying to make somebody happy and, and with no, you know, with getting nothing in return. And even in the montage that follows that, the ending montage uh, scored to TJ Khaled's Every All I Do Is Win, which is just so cheeky and wonderful. Um, they're all, like, watching, walking down the boardwalk, and they're not even, like, together. She's walking with her girlfriends. He's walking with his bros. I mean, you know, whatever. Like, it just completely doesn't even think that they would get together and i think that's what people sometimes get tripped up on but yeah this is uh i just it's a real stunner of a movie for me in how uncomplex it is like it's not that it's the most important movie that came out this year although i do think certain people should watch it and learn a little bit about like you know sexual equality and um how everybody's different and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff but this is a movie that is so effortlessly good. I can't like shake it. Um, there, are, there, are, and a part of that probably is I think Gregory Jacobs, the director, did a great job uh, taking over for Steven Soderbergh's. But also, Steven Soderbergh was in the uh, the editing bay and the um, he was the involved cinematographer. He was the director of photography. Yeah, so he so he had a he had a, he had influence in the film. I was gonna say sure. like he gave I think. He was how the story got told so well for not having a plot, and yet I think Gregory Jacobs, who I I don't know if he wrote the script or not, but it was a Steven Soderbergh. Um, I, I think they they finally found a vehicle worthy of this like you know area as far as like male entertainers, uh, and even down to the littlest thing, uh, Mike D'Angelo, who writes or used to write for the Dissolve wrote a piece because he does a column for the AV Club called Scenic Routes and he'll just take a scene from a movie that he likes he might not even like the movie but if he likes that scene he'll just take that scene and he'll just kind of analyze it and say why he likes about it he chose one of the most banal scenes from Magic Mike XXL to devote a whole column to and it's the scene actually that I mentioned earlier with Donald Glover in the front seat of a car talking to Matt Bomer's character he chose that scene because it's actually and it's something I noticed like the third time I had probably watched it is that when characters are in the background having conversations, you can hear what they're saying, and they're also in character. Like, they are not doing the thing that I would say 99% of movies do when there is no real script written for them, if they're just background. Like, they are they, they are not the peanuts, wah, 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 wah. Like, <laughs> you have to just move your mouth, and we'll just, like, take down the audio. But they're having real conversations, and in the backseat of a car when they're not the focal point, and it never once goes to the backseat. And I think that message is this movie's message is that it doesn't matter if the spotlight's not not on you. You still matter as a person. And I just I really ate that message up. And Hmm. there's just so much fun to be had in this movie. Putting all that aside, that is is, is hysterical in certain scenes. And uh, it's uh, it's really, I think, heartwarming in others. So that's why Magic Mike double XL is my favorite movie of 2015. Right on. I like it. Yeah. I like that you held your guns, too, because I kept thinking that this was going to fall off and end up being like pushed down to number six or something like that, and you, you it, kept strong with it. Oh, I did, and it's, uh, it's I will say, like, The Hateful Eight is probably the only thing that rivaled it, but it, it's they're so diametrically opposed I know, it's... that it's like, I, I almost don't want to choose, but if I choose the movie that I just, like, I wouldn't want to live without, it would be Magic Mike XXL, <laughs> yeah. so... Yep. Very good. <sighs> On to Tucson. All right. Okay, so my favorite film of 2015 should be no, of no surprise to my Film Tank co- co-hosts or to anybody who has listened to 
um, me talk on this podcast for the past year. Um, I think that when we first did an episode on this, like my Tomorrowland, <laughs> my love of this film like burned white hot. Like it was just it was just searing off of every single word I had to say. And I think that in the intermittent time that has gone between my multiple viewings of this film in theaters and sitting down to watch it again on, on home video and just like watch and talking about it on this episode that that white hot like appraisal has cooled and hardened into something very obsidian and very very much a, a retained its shape and that I'm able to talk more pointedly about what it is that this film like really appeals to my gratifications. The film that I'm talking about is David Robert Mitchell's It Follows. Oh, okay, yes. Yes. I did not know where you were going with that at first. For some weird reason, I actually for- not forgot about that movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yes. As, anyway. soon, as soon as he uh, is brought it up, I was I, I kind of had a yeah uh, yeah had, but, a, had yeah. an idea of where he was going with it. Or Please yeah. continue. Yeah. This this film for me, like in the same way that I think that uh, Kumiko um, is an aesthetic masterpiece. I feel like what I really took away from this film is a lot of things. I loved it as a horror film personally, because I thought that it was very invocative of the Carpenter Craven aesthetic while at the same time anchoring itself in its own little like pocket bubble dimension of millennial malaise also of, of like, like Detroit degradation, other things like that. I thought that the soundtrack by disaster piece was exceptional is one of it is probably my favorite fucking soundtrack of this past year um i'm just gonna shout out uh to one of my fellow writer friends uh zach budger he did a exceptional uh interview with disaster piece on kill screen and i would definitely like if you're interested in the soundtrack you should definitely like go and read that because it is it is on point he did a great job um i think that as a as a space as as creating this this film as a space like that how how can i how can i articulate this because it does this so well in film in that it it feels like such a it it feels like an adolescent summer slash like fall like when i'm when i watch uh jay and her sister walk down the 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 cul-de-sac with their with their dual smoothies and they're just like talking about stuff and you hear like the the sound of mo of lawns being mowed or people just talking and just like the 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 errant sound of a of a radio going off and people just washing their cars and stuff like that like it made me feel like how i felt when i was like 17 riding around my my bicycle and just like hanging out with my friends and just shooting the shit like that that felt yeah. like real that was that was cinema verite for me yeah. like you can't it is so hard to replicate let alone articulate what that is and he totally did it exceptionally. It was so good. And I ultimately think that as much as these, the, the, the titular it like taps into the, the psychosexual like um, animosity and, and, and just, just repercussions of, 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 of sex in, in general, like the, the, the inherent fears of sex, I think that – and I will argue this, that ultimately this film is a, is a sex-positive film. I will say that because ultimately the way that it's depicted is that like what is sex if not something that that affects you that changes you for 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 your life like yeah. not not so much in the physical sense but also really like devastatingly profoundly in the emotional sense 
Like we see like Jay's entire like arc not only in just trying to combat with this new force that has kind of like entered into her into her realm, which is the the reality of sexuality really that's bearing down on her in like in, in coming to bear with the adult consequences that come with that. Not everybody has to deal with a fucking like smoke monster that like manifests itself as a myriad of different faces in order to kill her because she had sex with a guy, okay? Yeah. Um but just just having to, to to use that as analogous to 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 dealing with that is so profound and interesting to me. And I I love it. I love this film to death and I and I think it's incredible. I was and, I was oh, yeah. and and one last note about this is that as much as I say that, like I can totally empathize with people who did not enjoy this film because it is an acquired taste and you know what? I can totally empathize with people who even think that this film might be one of the most overrated of 2015. <laughs> but for me, <laughs> but for me, I love this film. So please, David Robert Mitchell, do not, for the love of God, make a sequel. <laughs> yeah, I saw the talks about that and how yeah. it might even be like reverse, like they'll call they'll call it follow it. If you because it's about going the opposite and like re yeah, I forgot okay. the exact whatever. Great. Just yeah. what we need. Uh, but I wanna just step in and say yeah. that I'm with you. I, it's not in my top six yeah. or anything like that. It wasn't in my honorable mention, but it's a movie that I actually did enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um I do think that the second time I watched it, I watched it differently. Mm-hmm. Like I liked it the first time and I appreciated it as a horror film and whatnot. But I feel like Ever since that first time, I'm never going to watch it the same way I did the very first time I watched it. And yeah. now I more of appreciate it as like this aesthetic experience. Yes. yes and I, so everything you just described as far as like in your opening with about like the, the recreation of middle suburbia, mm-hmm. like it's completely dead on. And that is why I'm actually drawn to it, uh, especially when you uh, pair that with, uh, you know, uh, What's it's who did the score? Disaster piece. D- disaster piece score, and that some of those shot compositions are just absolutely magnificent. Mm-hmm. So, like, I am actually transported to a place that I know very well, yeah. uh, myself. But so. it's also like askew because for the fact that it has this modern technology, yet everybody's watching like movies on analog, and it's just kind of like this this place that's caught in the middle of itself that it doesn't know where it wants to be. Yeah, and I I think also what you were saying about you know like it's sex positivity i think you're onto something in the sense that it it doesn't say that jay should not have had sex or anything like that but it does show the irrevocable damage that it can cause Mm -hmm. if you have it without thinking about the effects after you know and it reminds me and i hate to bring up something that i love and compare it to but it reminds me of the very first major arc on buffy the vampire slayer that's fine when buffy has sex for the first time with Mm -hmm. angel and that's what turns him into a monstrous vampire and it became this stand-in metaphor for like the, the the asshole who would have sex with the girl and then become a complete asshole afterwards the once emotional he got what he fallout wanted. of yes of sex, and yeah. i think this movie takes that up to like uh 11 as far as like the nightmare of like that you cannot shake it and mm. you can it doesn't matter if you're walking down the street or whatever like that is something that you can never take back it and could that's be a scarlet the, letter or it could be a monster that that yeah. bears on your soul and that's going to be the thing that haunts you and that's why for me like the ultimate creature feature portion of it like mm. especially the third act i will admit kind of dissipated by the end of it but that's yeah. why it's still 
resonates with me is because that thematic core is still so strong that I like I'm totally all in with it as far as what it's doing. So yeah. I, 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 you know, I I bought it. I rewatched it when I bought it, but now you're just making me want to rewatch it because I I, I really did. I really did dig it. It's, yeah. it's a good film. Yeah, definitely. So that is my top film of 2015. It follows by David Robert Mitchell. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I just Alex, really you're to... a little silent over there. Yeah, you're a little silent over there, Alex. Did you, how the much hell? did you love It Follows on a scale of ten to eleven? Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. If you, if you don't remember, I was not a fan of It Follows. I know, buddy. In in, okay. in the slightest, um, I will say something that I I really liked when I saw it in the theater, and something that I I enjoyed uh, for sure. Without the, and obviously the score was really good, and the cinematography <laughs> was was it was a positive in it for for me. But I, I really enjoyed that the, the, the I felt like the story wasn't as cut and dry as people were making it seem, where everyone's pretty much about how all well, this film's about sexually transmitted diseases, and I I feel like it's it's much more it's a reductionist up- lens. I've yeah. I've kind of like wheeled back from that initial because that's only the surface level of that, but I feel like I'm I'm more confident in my assessment of it now. Well, and yeah. and that's what I I feel like when I was trying to talk about when we did the episode the first time that I feel like that it was much more broader than just oh it's about STDs and, and that kind of thing. But but something I, I remember enjoying uh, in the, the one particular scene uh, was involved with the the friend and I I've only seen it the once so I can't remember all the characters' names, but the the guy who, who who pals around with them and ends up mm-hmm. getting murdered by his his mother, who's a stand-in for. And I just remember that I thought that was one of the standout moments of the film because I thought it was very interesting that very Freudian. Well, and and this yeah. this fear almost of your of your parents of of almost like a disappointment, and she is like physically the one who kills him. It's well, very interesting, and not just that, but the fact that she's naked is. Adds not only to the grotesque nature of that scene, but also in in, the, in how sexuality is, keeps confronting these teenagers, and how like now they have to connect what they've done with what their own parents do, and if they can reconcile that, and and like if that you know whatever, and the fact that that destroys them, it's, it's, it may sound like a cheap joke, but you know nobody wants to think about nobody that. wants to think or talk about that'll that. That'll be that'll be your undoing if you go too far down that rabbit hole. So I love that <laughs> that's like another layer as how I I agree with what you guys are saying in the sense that it's not as much about. ST- TD that's probably even I professed that it might have been when we first did the episode, mm-hmm. um, but that it's more of just about confronting the, the sexuality in general and and the horrors that kind of come with that. And uh, I will say too, the uh, the swimming pool scene was one of the most laughably bad scenes <laughs> from recent memory for me. So <laughs> yeah. um, that was just awful. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's well. Way to end on a positive. Note, hey, you know Alex. what? Uh, that's no what we're problem. doing with our number one. No, no problem, I, man. I totally see why lots of people really enjoyed this, and it just wasn't for me. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad you liked it that much, Dusad. Thanks, man. So moving on to our, our final film, we'll be talking about, which is my number one of this year. Uh, this was a film that was so important for me for a, a number of different reasons. It was kind of I was kind of in a not I won't say like a, a rough patch when it comes to films, but I was sort of just not enjoying films as much as I really felt like I should be. And you were was, in a bit of a drought. I, I would say that, and, and these kind of things come and go, but there's always, uh, for previous times when I've had these, there's always then a film that brings you back out of it. Clear! Uh, yeah. 
And and this film very much did that for me, and I just thought it was such a fantastic film on so many different levels, and that was Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs. Mm. It's a great movie. It, it was a great, fantastic film that really, from start to finish, never took a moment off throughout the film, and it just kept my interest from scene to scene. It moved so quickly throughout the film, even though it only had three major scenes that really were happening throughout the entire film, which is amazing almost. And the characters just kept talking with this terrific, terrifically written script from Aaron Sorkin, and it just was engaging. I think that was the thing that, that kept me so interested in this film. And even when there were moments that were slight lulls and weren't my favorite parts of the story, I was interested in what was happening. And so many standout scenes and so many standout performances. I mean, Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs in this film was so fucking good. Like, I, I have a hard time, like, trying to remember how good he was. Like, it, and it, it's easy to, to forget when you've seen the film once and it's... it's I got no publicity. I no. Mean, nobody saw it, so there was also less conversations about it. And it was gone from the theater almost as soon as it, it, it yeah. landed there. But I, I just feel like this film was so interesting to watch. And even if the story is a lot of it is fiction, which part of it definitely was, and it's made up for film, which is just how it goes in, in real life when you're making a movie, it just always just there for you. And it, it just kept me on the edge of my seat the entire time in, in, a, in a biopic for the most part, which is these are films that are usually are boring, like, like Lincoln, yeah. which even I really <laughs> like that film. But it is not a fun, fast, enjoyable film where this is a talky film that I feel like kept me on the edge of my seat the entire time. And not only had me interested in the narrative, which it did, and somehow kept me interested in this story, which I pretty much knew mostly about. But it also just made me laugh. It made me sad. It it just pulled out all the emotions. And it, it did that in such a great way. And, man, Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet and... Seth Rogen, who's giving a just terrific performance, Jeff Daniels, you name it. Almost everybody who plays in this film does a great job, and the story just is tied all together. Beautiful. Michael Stuhlberg is also, yes. a, uh, I would say, like a stealth MVP of the movie in the sense that he has such a thankless character in a lot of ways, especially just in his role in Steve's corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the scene that his final confrontation, because like everybody gets to have one last word with Steve, uh, his final conversation is so, I would say, underplayed that it becomes more emotional than some of the other melodramatic scenes. And I don't mean that as an insult or pejorative. Like, I like A, melodrama, and B, I love this movie. It's right outside my top ten. Mm-hmm. But he really surprised me for some weird reason, despite the fact that I always love him in most movies. Yeah, he was, he's been great in almost, in even like the things that are weird that aren't that good, like Men in Black 3, I thought yeah. I would enjoy enjoyed his role in just because it was fun and enjoyable but other things like when he was on boardwalk empire or i know a lot of people have thrown praise his way for a serious man yes, very good at that i mean that's his role of a lifetime so yeah. to speak uh but yeah he's great and uh the i was gonna say really quickly that i also think what you just brought up steve uh steve uh Seth Rogen. Yeah. Um, Steve. <laughs> it's not so much that he's giving the best performance of the movie, because he's not, but he might be the most perfectly casted, because mm-hmm. I feel like he, more than everybody, and like that's why you hire an actor like Michael Fassbender, because he'll get into character and like completely blow you away with how you forget that it's Michael Fassbender or whatever, but he might be the like perfect embodiment of that character, of that exasperated, like 
put upon person that has to stand next to Steve Jobs every mm-hmm. time he gets the gold medal. That he just he's just the perfect person to be that role. I think. Well, and I think the thing about his portrayal of of Waz, which is so great, is that he's so committed to one idea throughout the entire film. Of can you please just. <laughs> acknowledge the yeah. Apple II team. And and that's his story throughout the entire film. And it's Steve just, is just like, you know what? I'm fucking not going to do that. So I know it's, it's one little gesture that has so much emotional resonance for both men as to why he won't do it and why, he, why the other wants him to do it. When I think that that's the great part of that final scene where, where we see Waz and him having their final, like, and they're, they're really only major confrontation because their other conversations they have in the other scenes of the film are way more filled with pleasantries and yeah, sort of the, awkward. The one in the middle section is pretty hostile because that's mm. the one where he basically says, "What do you do?" Like where he throws right. it back into his face. But it still feels yeah. a little, a little more right, right, friendly. Like they've had this fight before. Yeah, yeah. Where the the final one is very hostile and uncomfortable yeah. and very public too. Yeah. And this is right after sort of Steve gets his like crowning moment because of his weird obsessive personality. Uh, the person who's operating the theater has gotten the exit lights to turn off during the, for the, for the uh, 10 video. seconds. Yes. Yeah. Or whatever, which was obviously very important to him because he's kind of a crazy person when it comes to that kind of thing. But then they have their very public in front of all their employees, which is, I feel like in, in a corporate atmosphere, like, like questioning the person who is above you in a setting in front of your peers is like grounds for termination immediately because that's that a is, death sentence. Stand it, up, was do it. He deserves yeah, it, it. It is like the the worst thing you could possibly do, and that's what makes that scene work for me so well because not only are they arguing about it, they're doing it in front of all of the people who are under them, really, at yeah. Apple. And it's just... And the character of Jobs also tells uh, whatever her name, Kate Winslow's character, mm-hmm. not to send the journalist away, which is the first time that happens. Because the other times, like, he never paid attention to that. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time, and as he's come a long way, like, as much as he's not grown as a person, he's grown in the most smallest and incremental ways. And I think that was another way, which is, like, I'm no longer hiding behind these kind of tabloid bullshits. I'm just who I am. Yeah. And you have to accept that, which is why he doesn't send that journalist away. Well, and that's a, the, another just great thing about this film is the characters grow throughout the years, even though we don't see them. And I think that's something that so many films struggle of, of wanting to show you every single thing that's a, a trait of the character and we don't get that in this film. We we kind of know where it came from because we see the continuation of something that happened with them in a previous scene that was eight years prior. But we don't get hit over the head with, well, because this happened, this is why this character did this in this scene. Like, we have to make some leaps ourselves. It's almost like reading a book with some of the things that happened in this film. And um, I just loved every minute of it. And I'm I'm so glad I went to go see it in the theater and was lucky enough to be one of the few people who got to yeah. see it. I'm going to take a totally opposite approach of getting, being one of the few people actually saw it in the theater. And I'm looking forward to watching this many times in 2016 because it was a fantastic film. And, um, I think it was deserving of even more praise than it, it, uh, ended up getting because it was, uh, it was my favorite film of 2015. So, yeah, that's the end of part one of our uh, best of 2015. What uh, is left to be said? <laughs> well, tune in and find out. Even though this was a two hour and 40 minute episode, um, our, our continuation of this episode, which uh, you can find part two of episode 48, which is our, um, I, I think it's going to be 
even though it's kind of listy, it's going to, I think, be a little more fun yeah, in terms a... of going to kind of enjoy talking about things that are our favorite parts of these films. I was say, it's like, also, it's a great way to, like, I know I have, uh, we're going to go through some categories, and it's a great way for us to kind of, uh, I would say, go through, maybe touch on other films that weren't in our list that we still want to recognize. In well, some way. In, in films are, you know, a, a sum of many parts, and I think yeah. that's what we're going to really hit on, and in part two of the episode is really the best of the the... The, you know, the, the the skeletons of, of films of, of things we liked in twelve categories, and some of them are going to be you know very much your typical categories, and some of them will be a little bit different. So uh, that'll be something to look forward to in part two of our best of 2015, and you can uh, catch that and uh, hope you enjoy it too. So thank you for listening to part one of our uh, 2015 year in review as we did our top six films. And we will catch up with you uh, on our next episode. See you in the future.